We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh, my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Scared money don't make money, you know? What is up, Gator Nation? Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Alan Williams. I'm here with James DiVirgilio. What a win for those Gators over Tennessee. Overthrow Joe lives up to his name. I loved it. I know you guys loved it. Excited to be back on the podcast with you all. As you can hear, a little bit of residue from being in the swamp on Saturday. James, how are you feeling over there? I feel great. My voice, uh, obviously not not back yet either like yours. Uh, I'm, I'm sipping on the classic, which seems to be our my September beverage of choice, which is honey and, and hot water. Just to do, to do something, to give me a coating from the copious amounts of yelling that you and I were throwing down in the swamp. Uh, just a just an all-around great time. And this episode is going to be an all-around great time. Of course, I think for all of us, we needed some kind of positive win, right? We've come on this podcast now for many years. And in the more recent many years, uh, we have not had a whole lot to celebrate. Things sort of were on this downward trend. We talked about the three-legged stool. We talked about how we need some on-field results, and we got one, which is great. We're going to break it all down with the cold, hard analysis. As always, we don't wear orange and blue glasses. We give you the cold, hard analysis. What's sustainable? What's not sustainable? What can we look forward to in the future? What concerns us? All while obviously celebrating the reality of this win. It was an important win. It was a significant win for Billy Napier, and it will be Really a fun time for us to discuss this type of game in the lens of a win. It's always better, Alan, to discuss what you can improve on when you have won. It's much more fun. Indeed. And much more satisfying. As always, if you like the content on this podcast, follow us on social media, sub to our YouTube channel for weekly film reviews, and become a patron on Patreon, where you too can become a donor by dropping us a dono. Weekly shout out to our producer, B-Red, and Carly the Commissioner for her work on the YouTube channel. Thank you so much. We could not do this show without either one of you. And if you have not yet, join the GNFP Sammy and the GNFP Java Discord for weekly game thread and other strategic-based discussions. Do your best within those threads to maintain a level of decorum there you and go. not to get so personal. <laughs> uh, I know for sure the nature of the, the typed word versus the in-person spoken word is different. It's just much easier 
to take things personally and to start writing things personally to each other. And, you know, the whole thing goes down from there. But there's my annual disclaimer on. There you go. Imagine you're sitting across from the person and, and you know, typically you have more empathy when that happens, even if you disagree. So there's that. We do have merch, as we will announce every single week. Uh, check that out if you have not yet. You can find the links in the show description here on your favorite podcast app that you are using right now and see if there is something there that perhaps you want to sport. Alan, we had a really fun weekend. Beyond yeah, we just, obviously, the football game, we got to do our GNFP meetup on Friday, which was a really good time. And then on Saturday, uh, you were with your, your family and kids, but I was bouncing around various tailgates, having a great time with a lot of the GNFP nation. Uh, and I could give shout-outs to all of you. So to make sure none of you feel left out, I won't give shout-outs to any of you because all of you were amazing. And uh, there was a lot of great hospitality. In fact, I have high hopes that the next GNFP meetup is going to be extra special given some of the bonds that were laid down and I think what we'll be able to to gather together and do. But it's really awesome, uh, obviously, for me personally, and I'll speak for you here too, Alan, to really meet uh, all of you. I mean, it's just special to have these conversations, to share this bond of Gator football, and to hear all the stories. I mean, so many impactful stories, Alan, about how people are brought closer together because of the Gators, because of perhaps some of the content that we produce and others produce. And that obviously warms my heart and means the world to me. And really just, again, really fun getting to know some of you personally, uh, that, that as an extrovert, I really enjoy that. <laughs> and, uh, I had an absolute blast. So thank you for all the hospitality and kindness you showed myself and Alan, uh, really, really a wonderful time. Yeah. Some faces from last year, some new people. Yeah. Everyone who showed out, you know, really on short notice, we didn't let you know about it until, you know, about a week or so out. So yeah, thanks for coming out. It was super fun to see everybody again and to meet some new people. Also shout out to Matthew Crowder, new listener, let me know he's listening. So those are always fun as well. Um, welcome to the family here. And yeah, some some donos rolled in. Some donos rolled in. Yeah, small dono. New dono we're here in Stephen McGee. Welcome aboard, Stephen. Thank you for the dono. Large dono, new from Dylan. Thanks, Dylan. Welcome in as well. And a level up from Michael Hammer. Thanks, Michael. I appreciate that continued support. Level up also from Larry Edwards to an XL dono. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. And Hundo Bombs coming in Bam. hot. Play the siren, right? <laughs> Ronan and Remy coming in with a Hundo Bomb. Let's go. Let's go, Ronan and Remy. That sounds like uh, some sort of of movie, obviously. Sitcom or like maybe. Ronin. Yeah, like. Uh, maybe a singing or, or could be. Yeah, maybe. Could be a sitcom. Could be serious. Could be like a spy novel. Like they're. It's like the. I don't even know. But something for sure. The More Fam. Coming in, the Hondo Bomb. Uh, he wanted to let you know, Alan, that he apologized for his overly negative take on the Gators when he met you at the meetup and was discussing what he thought was going to happen in the game, and he was dead wrong. Okay. Very happy to be dead wrong. And then Adam McGeed uh, could be, yeah, McGeed, right? Let's do it. What do you think? I think so. Adam, thank you. Hundo Bomb. So three Hundo Bombs this week. Awesome. Dropping bombs, baby. Uh, obviously, the Gators do well. Hundo Bombs tend to come in as well. Still sitting on the throne, Cooper and Kylie Craig. I think we can all agree. Solid rain right now with the win over Tennessee. They should be feeling very good about themselves. And Alan, let's hit those Dono legends. All right. James Ridge, Barry Jenkins, Guy Tumbleson, Cooper and Kylie Craig, the aforementioned King and Queen, Jason Walker, the big homie, little Peyton, Constantine, Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stashmi, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick. James Truett, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Jamie Galliano, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Remery, Craig Scarado, 
Alan Horde, Sidney Singleton, Kristen Moody, David Sugar, Percy Harvin, baby, and the man himself, Doug DiVirgilio. Okay, let's talk about this Tennessee game. The first question I think that was resonating with me, I think with a lot of people, is just how big a win was this? Uh, one of our you know, characters here on the GNFP, JT Raymond, was talking about this is a must win. This is do or die. And while I don't think that's the case, this was really important, especially when you look at the other rivalry games. This one felt like the easiest one to win. Easy not being the right word, but the most attainable with Georgia, Florida State, and LSU, none of which are probably looking like juggernauts. But at least from this vantage point, this was needed. This was a vulnerable Tennessee team. This was at home. This was an opportunity to notch a big win. And really for Billy and his quest to bring this program where he wants it to be, where we all want it to be, you need some more proof of concept. And this is it, right? So you take down a top 10-ish team, even if I don't think Tennessee probably deserved that rating. That's where they were. Uh, and I think you stole a lot of Tennessee's momentum and brought it to yourself. And I think Billy needed this. Gator Nation needed this. I think the players needed this. Great moment for a big-time win. Yeah, significant moment. We had set the stage last week that this was not a must-win, but style-wise, it was like a, a must-show some stuff that mm-hmm. indicates that the on-field performance is getting better. Back to the the three-legged stool. Uh, and that obviously happened. So because of that, for me, it is significant. There were some things that we cemented, I think. Actually cemented. I'm going to use the word cemented. Other things I still have questions about. But no doubt about it, because of some things we cemented, which we'll talk about, the program took a step forward on Saturday night. I think for the long run. And that's what I'm interested in. It's what you're interested in. Pretty much everyone thinks that this year is not going to be right a championship year for Florida. Now, some of you might be out there thinking this is going to happen in force. Anything can happen in sports. But in all likelihood, the rebuild process is not for this year. So what we're looking for, what I'm looking for, are continued signs of future success. How quickly can we get there? What will it look like when we get there? What are the issues I see along the way? And I think this game was huge for that reason. You have year three, Tennessee with Heupel. You have year two, Billy Napier. You're at home. Tennessee had not won at Florida in 20 years. Little Peyton had never lost to Tennessee at home. <laughs> Most importantly. right? Yeah. He was at home watching the game on the big screen as we were in the stadium. Uh, he does not take that L. He gets yet another W. So I think a lot of positive things to take from this. And perhaps most importantly, and Billy said this afterwards, in investing, one of the hardest things to go through is a period of bad performance, even if you're doing everything that you think is correct. And you relate to your clients that, look, here's what our strategy does. Here's what's happening. Here's why things are adverse. But as Billy mentioned, you really want your leaders and your staffers and your players and everyone in your organization to see the fruits of their labor, to see their performance result in something good that increases belief that where you're going is in the right direction. And it also gives you the reward of success. Uh, and I think for all of those reasons, this was a really important momentum builder for Florida. Now, football is a really awesome sport because it only lasts so long. If you come out against Charlotte this week and lay an egg, then all that's gone, right? But I think, like we talked about, a lot of this was sustainable. It is sustainable. That's what's important. And for me, that is why this win actually, as we talked about it kind of being a watershed moment, Alan, was significant. The style with which Florida displayed in certain facets of their football game is sustainable, is repeatable, I think then can allow us to 
imagine a future Florida football team with with some complete pieces that can compete. And that's that's a that's a big marker, I think. Right. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Yes, and it, not just the win, right? Which I think you were taking a win no matter what, right? Oh yeah, definitely take a win no matter what. Fluky for a little bit, or yeah, maybe if it was unrepeatable in some phases, you're like, whatever. We needed the win. We'll take whatever we can get. But this was a win and a potentially dominant win. Didn't really shake out like that because of the way the second half went. But Florida seemed like they knew what they were doing in both phases, and there was some competency in all in both offense and defense. We'll get to the special teams, uh, you know, a little bit uh, later, but I I felt like this wasn't a fluke. Like if you run this back, Florida wins most of the time. And I think that's a really good feeling that you didn't have to, it wasn't smoke and mirrors. It wasn't just the voodoo in the swamp. It was uh, a team that was prepared well and talented. So uh, speaking of the voodoo in the swamp, the crowd and the environment, there there are some people making some big claims about this is the best the swamp has been in a long time. Uh, you know, I, I think people were hungry for a big win in that moment. Where did the crowd and environment rank for you? You know, that was a really solid environment. Mm-hmm. I mean, you and I sat down low, so we were on row 11, which mm-hmm. the noise is louder uh, in those areas. But where we were... Really solid, I thought, you know, largely from start to finish. It was it was it was up there. I left the stadium and I knew that I was in a loud environment for a long time. And that's how I think it used to be always. Uh, and I want to give credit to the student section, which seems we've noticed this. We've been chronicling this sort of on the pod. There was like a I think a significant downturn in student level of like dialed in fandom, uh, you know, 10 years ago up until about a couple years ago. And it really seems like the student body is like dialed into the football game like i saw people were like locked in Mm -hmm. not a lot of like random cell phone usage not paying attention like dialed into what's happening cheering supporting that makes the swamp what it is i think in large part you have to have those eighteen thousand you know kids really fired up so for me excellent environment thought the crowd was dialed in i know from what i heard uh, from most people on the west side of the stands people were standing up most of the game like it would have been in the old days as well. I think everyone wanted this game. And the game itself, in my opinion, football, when you're at home, is best when you have a defense that is exerting dominance and an offense that is scoring. Now, if Florida's offense was not lighting the board up with excitement, but the defense was providing that alpha, mm-hmm. like we got this and we're going to do this. And that was that was the heavyweight matchup, right? We profiled it. Florida's defense versus Tennessee's offense. That's what people came to see. Florida's offense versus Tennessee's defense was not anyone's main event at all but man that main event was real and Florida was winning that main event and there was there was excitement and belief and I think that fueled the crowd from start to finish right uh, and even in the second half when there was obviously a malaise over the offense that defense kept coming out there kept typing the crowd up and the crowd was responding and and it was it was it was there it was real uh, so for me I think really solid is what I want to say that was a really solid atmosphere I think for a lot of people that Post COVID, you know, the COVID, it's like weird. You lose institutional knowledge, Alan, during COVID. You know, it's like, yeah, who does what? What's loud? What's exciting? Uh, but I think for a lot of people, that was the marquee game of the weekend. If you were a neutral fan and you tuned in, that in Colorado, Colorado State, which occurred later. And I mean, I, I think that on TV, you hear it. Obviously, you hear people commenting on social media. I mean, you see Tennessee fans with their ears being plugged in the, in the stadium, and Tennessee gets loud too. But 
I mean, I, that's what the swamp does, right? I mean, it's a different animal. Yeah, it was an incredible environment. I felt really lucky to be there. It was super loud. I, you know, there never was the kind of crescendo of the game is on the line in this moment. Now, it got to that where Tennessee had that fourth down where the game was essentially over, but there's still a lot would have had to happen. And it wasn't, you know, an all-time matchup versus two top five teams or something like that. But for where the Gator program is right now, where the Tennessee program is right now, I think it was about as good as it could get for that game. And, uh, yeah, super fun place to be on Saturday night. Okay. The question, what surprised you the most? Uh, for me, it was a couple of things. Uh, one, the thing I took away for is just how little Josh Heupel trust Joe Milton, that they never really let him go outside of a few moments and a few very, uh, you know, some big time throws that they asked him to make, but felt like, man, they just cannot do what they want to do with him at all. And it wasn't just, uh, he's missing throws, but they just wouldn't even literally turn it over to him. And that the defense was able to contain them so well. I, I was expecting them to play well. And that was even better than I expected, but that they're, they're a broke down car right now with Joe Milton at the helm and they've got a lot to fix. And then in the positive for the Gators uh, that we are able to run the ball as effectively as we're in spurts. And we'll get to ETN a little bit more in a minute, but man, he was a star in this game. Yeah. What surprised me the most was Tennessee's game plan on defense. If I was doing a Tennessee podcast, lot of questions a lot of questions on their game plan on if they even watched Florida play on film I mean what they did was borderline criminal tactically in the first half and I I have no idea why they thought that was a good idea uh, but that helps Florida that was significant to aiding Florida and then to your point we said on film last week that he does not trust Milton. We literally gave examples of the Austin P game when it's like he doesn't trust him. But as he a didn't have player. to trust him last week. He was forced in scenarios where normally you would say, even if this is not going to work, we need to try it. Right. But even then in the Austin P game, like there are moments when you, because you have a margin of safety, you would typically say, well, let's, let's try to trust him here. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, we kind of felt like that would carry over and, and kudos for Florida, which we're going to rave about the defense for doing what needed to be done, which is take away what we said. Joe Milton has done consistently well, which are throw those east west screen style plays, and Florida just bottled that mm-hmm. junk up. And, and when that wasn't there, this Tennessee offense is not as dangerous with their receivers. That's part of it. They don't have the interior um, pass catching and route running ability they had last year. That's part of it. And most importantly, though, Florida with the tight front, which we talked about, bottled up Tennessee's interior running game. Yes. And bottled up Joe Milton on the attempted runs he had there, too. So, None of those things surprised me, but to your point, uh, I think when Tennessee had the ball down 26-9 to with 2 minutes, 22 seconds left, and they they ran 5 of 6 plays, basically, they ran the ball, Mm -hmm. was really a wild look. Uh, And I think that was a major tip to the fact that that Coach Ham had Heupel in a little box, and Heupel didn't want to come out of his little box and try something else because he was afraid yeah. of what the result may be. And that's For great sure. coordinating and great game theory to recognize what you've seen on film about your opposing coach and then see what he does. And it wasn't until really the fourth quarter that Heupel started letting everything go and just starting to try to run you know, more vertical style routes, just no matter what the case was, attempt to kind of reckless abandon 
uh, go for it. But but you know, I think the most surprising thing really was Tennessee's game plan, and in, in a large way that that shaped the game, uh, as we'll talk about. That significantly shaped the game, basically giving Florida that first half lead. Uh, with with a game plan that was very questionable, I think allowed Florida to play in a very comfortable position at home, well ahead of an opponent that uh, was struggling on offense. The reason I put there, they'll use the word surprise, because we both predicted a loss, now a close loss. I predicted 24-20, you were 2017. So the game didn't quite play out quite how we expected it to, uh, with Florida having much more offensive success I think than we would have thought and the defense around the same you know so I think uh defensively we were hopeful that they were going to come through all right the keys to the game let's review those on offense I asked for five plays of 15 yards or more we got five defense five plays or less of 20 yards or more and then they let give up three and so great. and so again leaning in we did mention that here South Florida wins the game yeah so in one way you're going to see from our keys that this is not surprising given the numbers that are here. Sure. Right? Yeah, yeah. So you nailed those two. You were right. Both of your keys were there, and those were significant. For sure. Uh, I think we had a, the general structure of the game right. It just, you know, if we win, it's maybe you just flip those scores, and Florida had the chance to put up even more points than they did. Mm-hmm. All right. So you talked about the offense uh, rushing the football for more than 175 yards. They hit that, 183. Ooh, snuck across the there line. There you go. There. And the defense rushing for less than giving up less than 125, they hit 100. And playing man 50% of more, we're at 44%. Although, as we'll get to, that could have been higher, but didn't necessarily need to be. But that's that's pretty close there. And the Gators do win 29 to 16. Kind of a funky score numbers there. If you had that in your bingo card, congrats to you. Let's review some of the offensive numbers here. All right, so 349 yards of offense, 183 rushing, 166 passing, 4.3 yards per rush. No turnover, 7 of 14 on third down. And the first half, obviously, yeah, almost perfect way, way on, higher. on, on four. So it really tails two halves, but excellent work in the first half. Again, and if you had 26 to 7 on your bingo card for halftime, you are the only person I'm playing. Yeah, so 20, 20, I guess 23 to 7. At half or twenty six to seven, you're right. Yeah, twenty six to seven, and that's and I'll work. It's on unbelievable my still to this day, even yeah. after the fact. Um, only allowed one sack. Um, Mertz was nineteen of twenty four, one hundred sixty six passing. As I said, um, had one TV. That's a seventy nine percent completion rate, right? So that's what we were asking him to do. He did it. Uh, B Red has a stat on here: ninety one percent catchable, which yeah. is interesting. That's 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 accurate. And as we're going to talk about, some of those throws were all Grant Mertz. Those, this, this was not because people were just running wide open, right? And in some respects, some of these right. third down conversions were extremely difficult throws. ETN with just an absolute stud of a game. 23 carries, 172 yards, one TD. Most of that um, came in some big moments in the first half, um, a little bit in the second half there. So some of those carries are even inflated. If you're going to talk his average, he was. they're just asking to run it in the line at the end. And, you know, still, so his yards per carry with, you know, meaningful action there was much higher. Montreal, 12 for 23 in a TD, so less success there. Ricky, six receptions, 43 yards. Eugene Wilson doing a lot in that first quarter, six receptions for 43 yards. Time possession, 37-28. He had five receptions in the first drive alone. Obviously, yeah. he goes out of the game with an injury, but first, like, five of the seven plays were to him. I mean, really heavily featured. Yes, and... B-Red says one UFC fight 
between Mazuka and Hayden there. So at the, at the very end, which of course was like an old school 1920s boxing match, the way they squared up, uh, pretty wild stuff. All right. So you've already tipped your hand here a little bit in terms of the Gators being successful in the first half. Obviously, a lot of completed passes, a lot of um, you know successful third downs. Um, so Tennessee not having an optimal strategy here obviously played a part. Say a little bit more about that. Well, we did say coming into it that Tennessee's defense likes to keep everything in front of them and make you drive. So that part's not surprising. Utah, much more aggressive defense. So we expected that Tennessee wouldn't be Utah, but I did not expect them to play scared is maybe not the right word. I'm going to use the word soft. Soft, okay. Uh, but but it looked a lot like defenses we had seen in the Grantham and Tony era last year where their linebackers are not coming downhill at all to start, which mess, which messes with your run fit. And your gap control, and I again profusely complained about this last year. You can't you can't be a successful run stopping team if you let your linebackers stand in no man's land and wait until it's clearly a run. You're done. You cannot stop a team. You can't do it. You have to choose to run fill and run fit. Tennessee did that in the second half, but in the first half, it's almost like they were just maybe they believed they could just stop Florida with a light box. Now, if there's one thing we've chronicled with Billy throughout time, it's that if you run a six-man box, he will run on you. Very few times in the 15 games of data we have on Billy has that not happened. It has happened. Teams have done it. We've talked about it. Vanderbilt famously did it. They owned us with a with a rather regular box. Tennessee couldn't do it, and they didn't really change it in the entire first half. They just kept doing what they were going to do. So Florida faced light boxes. Florida also faced some really questionable uh, back-end rotations for Tennessee with how they wanted to bring more men into the box. So if they started with six and they wanted to bring eight, they were often run blitzing on the left or right side, kind of taking what you consider to be a rather aggressive guess. And Billy had it dialed up. He was killing them. If they went left, we were going right and vice versa. And was leaving easy yards, easy counter plays, good gap runs. We hit him with a couple of well-timed power gap runs on some counters. And that's what Billy does really, really well. So why is it surprising? Because everyone should know that Billy does that well. He has a very good feel for calling the run game, for getting you off balance, for using those plays against you. And Tennessee leaned right into it, and Billy was was consistently hitting them. Jab, 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 big punch with ETN. Jab, 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 You know, big chunk yards here. Uh, but all of that, and this I want to give credit to Billy for, all of that started with the primary question we had asked entering into the game. What should Florida do? We said, we want Florida to do this with the passing game. That's not going to happen. So what should Billy do if we're Billy? And the answer was, he has to devise a way to be able to run the football. And that device was using Trey on those jet sweeps early on. Very effective. And then Trey was very effective. Whether Tennessee did not line up correctly, which happened once or twice, or Trey just broke enough tackles, Percy Harvin-like, the play design and the defense might be fine, but the athlete wins, and now you're in trouble. And that got Tennessee over-focusing for almost the entire rest of the game on all of Florida's jet sweep action, which is what Billy wants to have happen every game. It has not happened in his tenure here at Florida like that, but it did. So he got them off balance early. They never really recovered until the second half, uh, and that changed the entire complexion of the game. And that's, that's Again, that's a credit to Billy. I can look at it on film and say, look, I think a better team stops that pretty pretty easily, right? But Tennessee didn't, and that's the name of the game. Play your opponent. And that was significant and so that that move by Tennessee to be soft to play run defense the way they did gave Florida the opportunity to get them off balance without having to pass the ball down the field and Florida took advantage of that consistently in the first half 
Yeah, uh, well said. I think, you know, we've been critical of some of the play design, but I do think he's uh, fairly adept at pushing the right button at the right time, right? That's the other side of being a play caller, not just what your schemes are, but which play are you choosing for which moment? And he seemed to know what Tennessee wanted to do. Now, this is now two years in a row of Billy having a very nice outing against Tennessee's defensive coordinator. So maybe he just got his number a little bit, but felt like Tennessee didn't really know what was going to happen. They were whether they should have or not. Functionally, they seemed to be wrong footed half of the time. And yeah, I was felt like every call was dialed up pretty much right. And they were executing it well. And I give credit here to Graham Mertz. And some of those thirds downs, him either feeling pressure, moving the pocket, rolling out, hitting some receivers along the sideline, people making some nice catches. When you needed a play, a play was had. And, yeah, that there's just enough there, right? There's not a lot of margin, right? As you said, we didn't really even attempt to pass like more than 10 yards or maybe 15 yards at most. And yet the offense was able to be – functional in that first half enough to put points on the board yeah very east west game plan Uh, Mertz in and out of the play calls quickly to the line very quickly very Mm -hmm. efficient Florida started the game off tragically with a false start penalty from the collapse stop which of course (laughs) just sends me to a bad place yeah and then thankfully that was almost it from the offensive side they they pretty much locked in played a very clean game and again big credit to Mertz for that and Mertz is like we said we said on film, look, we, we've heard the whole gamut of conversation on Mertz here on the podcast. And we kept coming back to it. Look, he's a capable pilot on film, right? He's solid. Uh, if you if he doesn't start off being rattled or it's a big game where he struggles, he can dial in and make those throws. And one thing we said on film he really does well was throw on the run to the right. We highlighted that all throughout his film review at Wisconsin. He's very good at that. And that, I think, is largely, if I had to give an MVP on offense, I'd give two out one to ETN, and I give one to Mertz, specifically throwing on the run to his right. I mean, two of the most crucial plays for Florida occurred with that. One, sticking that ball into Trey on the sideline, and two, just maybe the best throw that Mertz has ever made in his life will be the one he threw to Khalil Jackson, where it's right over the outstretched fingertip of Tennessee's underneath defender for a third and long conversion. And it's an absolute dime. It couldn't be thrown any better. It's thrown a tiny little box. It's a great catch, great body control by Jackson. But... Mertz could not really have played better in this game. There's probably two moments he could have done something different that would have improved his play. But all in all, given the balls he had to throw, given the fact that he doesn't have, there aren't receivers down the field that are open. Florida wasn't asking him to do that either. Uh, Excellent work by him managing this football game. And again, the comp rate along with the catch rate shows that. It's not his job to call the passing plays. And if you're watching on TV, as I'm going to tell you, like I tell you every single week, people are not open down the field. They're not open. And we'll talk about that later. But for now, Mertz cannot get enough credit for this game. And this is not, I am not surprised by this. This stuff exists on tape at Wisconsin. It's there. He's done it before. What's great right now for Mertz, and we have to all hope this turns the corner for him. In the biggest games, he had generally played his worst games, especially recently. This was a huge game for him. This was a massive game for Florida's program, and he delivered on a major level. And that is something we all have to hope fuels him with confidence. Hey, you know what? Next big game I play, I can do this. I've already done it. 
I did it in a huge game in the swamp now. That stuff is behind me. I'm a new guy. And I'm going to hope that fuels him to keep riding that. Uh, but again, certainly Merch did what he was asked and he handled the quarterback job proficiently, very well, and was, I think, one of the MVPs in this game, despite the fact that his stat line, as we unpack it further, is not impressive. But the plays he made in big moments on third downs when needed were huge. They did. Yeah, I think he did everything they asked him to do very well, very competently, very efficiently. Even you can tell, you kind of mentioned this real briefly, but um, I forget the word that Billy likes to use with this, but getting the play in, getting everyone lined up and moving. We were able to play with tempo when we needed to. Everything looked much crisper. Even in the second half when we were, you know, bleeding the clock, it we were ready to go. We could have gone much earlier and then smartly waited, waited, waited um, to, you know, successfully implement that game plan. All right, I got to talk about Trevor Etienne. Travis Etienne, Trevor Etienne. You know, I always mix them up in my heads, but Trevor, there you go. I think he's largely the reason we won this game. When you look at the stuff he was able to accomplish in the run game, often there wasn't a lot there. And I will say, after the missed field goal and then the Tennessee touchdown, which took them about four seconds to get the ball in the end zone, I was like, I think we were wrong. We're going to lose this game 41 to 10. Uh, That was it. You you could probably just, everyone could just leave. And then what happens next? A 60-yard touchdown run where he shows off all the stuff that you love about him. The quickness, the elusiveness, the power, the speed that make him a special running back. I, you know, I, I follow the NFL as well. And I largely agree with the devaluing of the running back position. There's just too many guys who are too good to pay anybody, any kind of money or spend high capital draft picks. But if we just had a replacement level running back in there, I think Florida loses this game or it is like 13 to 10 or something like that. Every time Florida needed a big run, he provided it. And it was often really through some heroic efforts or supreme vision or a back cut or something that allowed that play. What could have been a small gain to be a big gain. And he was a star on the field on Saturday and we needed him to be. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well said. And obviously in college football, running backs, you know, how many running backs will play in the NFL from this year's college football class? Very, very few. Very few. In the NFL, all those guys were excellent in college or they were on weird teams where they were unbelievably talented. And so there's a much bigger value for running backs in college football. And you saw that and you're you're exactly correct to highlight that. Uh, And we've talked about this. Montrell is a really good runner especially in the zone runs because he hits the right hole all the time. He has great cutback vision. ETN missed a chance for a huge play in the second half that I'm sure he's going to want back. I put that on the film review, but he is just special when it comes to, you know, comparing him to a guy like Montreal. And that's not a knock on Montreal. It's just life and reality. The gifts that ETN has are significant. And those gifts allowed Florida to win incredibly quick feet, Almost never gets thrown off balance. If he does, he maintains a forward lean. He maintains speed. And you can see on the film that Tennessee's defenders were consistently surprised by his burst through the hole. Like, just surprised. Like, they kind of felt like they had an angle, and he's gone. He's gone. He's through the hole so fast. Uh, Obviously, the key stat for me on the running backs, and almost all of this comes from ETN, is this right here, Alan. Florida had, as we mentioned, 183 rushing yards. 
134 of those rushing yards came after contact. And that is your point. If you have a replacement level running back, as you called it, those 134 yards probably become 20, 18. And then Florida rushes for 50 yards. And then Florida loses. Or they, or it's like a rock fight, like we talked about it could have been. And it's a random ball bounce or something else at the end, right? So you're exactly correct. I think that's why Mertz, MVP for third down conversions. And then obviously ETN, without him, you probably don't win this game. Even if Mertz converts a few of those third downs, there's no way you're winning because Mertz is not going to hit home run because he can't. The offensive play design, as we talk about with regards to passing, is not there. We can't score passing. We didn't score passing in this game. It's 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 with ETN, and, and you're 100% right to say we can't say enough about him. It will be interesting to see how Florida handles him in bigger games going forward because the home run upside is there, and Florida needs it. If Billy's going to keep running offense the way he's running offense, Florida has to put all their chips on their best athletes running the football for them, which right now is Trey and ETN. And Montreal, I think you saw this last year, right? With a better offensive line, he's going to give him some advantageous holes. He's going to do the right thing. He's tough to bring down. He is tough. He's quick. He made a great cut um, for that touchdown. Excellent move. He's an excellent yeah. running back. Yeah. This is taking nothing away from Yeah, him. exactly. In, in comparison, but I think you can tell there's just always something special about ETN. And, you know, again, he doesn't have everything that you'd want if you're building the perfect running back, but he's pretty close. And... Man, we needed him big time. I mean, that was probably the best moment in the swamp was the big run, right? We need it so bad. The energy was so low in that moment, and then he's gone. And, I mean, you you and our, our buddy Crab almost got knocked over into the, into the uh, aisle by, like, a sea of people just going nuts. And that was an awesome moment and probably what turned the game and allowed Florida to be as successful as they were. Yeah, significant moment there uh, for sure. And let's talk about Trey Wilson. You already mentioned him a little bit. He he looked electric, like at in running the ball. He looked good catching the ball when we had him out there. The kind of player that you really do need in this type of offense, where he can take what would have been a marginal play and turn it into an excellent play, strikes fear in the defense. You have to account for him if he's running across the formation, and you don't follow him or shift correctly. It could be just a touchdown because you didn't move fast enough. And we don't have very many guys like that yet. So having him out of the field is huge. I actually had this thought after he, you know, we used him on like five of the first seven plays, whether that all that wasn't planned necessarily. I thought, man, he's a little guy. Is he going to be able to hold up to that? And then he was gone. So I don't know if that's going to be true long-term, but that's definitely something you have to monitor with his usage as well is that, He's not a guy you want to give the ball to 30 times a game uh, passing and running because I don't think he'd be able to stand up to that. Uh, but we need more people like him. And if Billy's going to be able to win with this type of offense, you're going to have to, he's got to continue to recruit these kind of guys. And I think that's where, you know, we talk a lot about Billy's offense and we'll talk more about it here in the, in the takeaways, but that, that is where the camp, it says, well, what if we just had all of pick your favorite teams, elite athletes on it? Would Billy's offense work? And well, that, that answer is pretty simple in general to start with at the macro level, pick any style of offense you want and put all the best players on it. Will it, will it work better? Yeah, it will work better. But we're going to use stats here again. What offense leads to the highest expected value and therefore the biggest margin of error for you to win? That's how I look at offense. I don't look at it as, well, would your offense work better? Yeah, of course it'll work better, but it also wouldn't be optimal. Uh, And I think to your point, what we saw with Florida was because we did have a playmaker at the jet sweep spot, let's call it, slot receiver. But really in Florida, it's a lot of jet sweeps. 
that changed the nature of the game. Facts change the nature of the game. You have to have that. Billy's offense, though, in my opinion, is far too reliant on individual heroics. And then eventually, as we've seen right now, a non-existent play-action passing game. Where Louisiana, he was connecting. He's not connecting since he's been here at Florida. And those things are very limited when you look at what you could do with modern football. But make no mistake about it. If Ricky Pearsall is at that jet sweep spot in the first half of that game, he's not gaining the yards that Trey's gaining. And then Tennessee's like, great, three yards. You can have that all day long. But Trey gaining 10 yards, nine yards, eight yards changes the tone of how that play looks. So the play works better when you have that kind of athlete back there. And then to your point, can he can he last? You know, it's so hard to know who's injury prone and who's not. Obviously, sure. AR starts off again with a phenomenal opening in the NFL, right? Comes out two drives, touchdown, and then kind of as AR is, he starts to jog into the end zone. NFL safety's coming at him, kind of sees him late, doesn't really protect himself, rolls over, gets a concussion. Just like a seemingly unlucky guy with how many injuries he gets. He's a huge, super strong guy. And then some other smaller guys like Marvin Harrison never got hurt. So will Trey be a guy who gets hurt all the time? We don't know. But certainly right now, unfortunately for Florida, they lost him early in that game and they were able to survive it. Uh, But hats off here. Let me pause right now and say hats off to Billy for creating a game plan that also utilized the true freshman as your main weapon early on. And then Trevor Etienne. And, And we said this about Billy when he came here. One of the things we were most excited about, Alan, was that he was going to play the best player. And one thing you're not hearing a lot about on the podcast this year, which you've heard a lot about from me for the past nine years, is personnel issues because we largely don't have them. We're playing the best guys. And that's why you don't hear me on all these reviews each week saying, like I have said before, change this guy, change that guy. And hopefully that gives a lot of you, especially some of you on Reddit, the thought that I'm always trying to just pick a bench guy. That's not true. It was just what film said about a guy not doing well. So I think Billy's nailing that part of the assessment on both sides of the ball, really. They're giving guys a chance to make plays. And and that is largely why Florida won. There's a lot to like about the personnel usage, a lot to like about Trey, a lot to like about how Florida worked. Uh, and that first half, again, was was a special first half in the Swamp to beat our rival 26-7 to like that, take it to him after that start. Uh, it was sort of like a mini Florida-Ohio State in the national title game, except we're at home and we weren't nearly as good as the football team, obviously, as that team. But just a you know, really bad feeling, low, low feeling, and then really high, high, and it's halftime and you're pitching yourself. Like, is this real life? How did this happen? So we talked about the three freshman receivers being kind of an X factor in this offense of what the points per game might be in terms of providing explosive plays. So we've seen Wilson. We've yet to see much of Mizell or Gene. You know, I'm not sure of Gene's health, but uh, those guys could provide something that we're not getting outside of anybody other than Ricky right now. Uh, everybody else is just kind of a guy. And so we love to see Wilson back as soon as possible because he does add something significant. And right. I, I uh, did want to be, very complimentary of the offense because they did what they needed to do to win this game. All right. Anything else schematically that as you looked at the film or anything else you just wanted to mention? On yeah. Well, it's worth side? it's, it's now is the right time to talk about the second half because we do have to look at both halves and look right? at all scenarios. Right. First of all, uh, you had just mentioned some receivers. Uh, I think Caleb Douglas is emerging. You're right. He is a nice player. He's a nice player. Uh, he's, he looks very nice on film. Uh, and we'll talk about takeaways on individual players in a second. But first to the macro. So the second half, concerns, obviously, are there. I'm going to start with this massive hall pass. And I'm only going to give one. I'm going to give it out right now. Billy is a coach and a person. He's a human. And any of you who have played anything competitively knows that when you need a win, 
when you really need a win, you hang on tight. Everyone does this. I don't care who you are. You're going to hold on real tight and you're going to pray that you get that win. And I'm pretty sure that's exactly what happened in the second half with Billy. I'm going to give him one pass on that because Billy needed a win. Gator Nation needed a win. And there's no doubt based upon his play calls. And he said this afterwards. He was maybe too conservative, right? Which is tongue in cheek. He was way too conservative. Way conservative. And that could have cost Florida the game. Thankfully, it didn't. But he needed a win. And he hung on real tight. And he played very afraid. And what do I mean by that? Number one rule on offense or defense is to get the numbers right. Get the numbers right. Tennessee in the second half started throwing eight, nine, sometimes 10-man boxes at Florida, and Florida ran the ball. That is absurd, ridiculous, not allowed, cannot happen, can't do it. You got a guy who started a million games so that you can easily score touchdowns when teams do that. Florida didn't even try. That is unacceptable if you're looking at this from a championship level. But hall pass, Billy needed to win. I'm going to leave it right there. In the future, if we keep seeing that stuff, we'll discuss. For now, total hall pass. Now, what happened? Florida's game plan, this reminds me a little bit in a different way of when Florida was close to beating Alabama at home with Emory Jones. And we came on afterwards and said, what happened is completely unsustainable. That will never happen again for the rest of this season. The speed option stuff we ran, that junk is dead. It's never going to work again. It never worked again with Emory Jones. It was a one-time shot. Florida's game plan against Tennessee versus other quality teams will never happen again this season. That was a one-time shot. It's not going to happen again. Here's how miragey this offensive performance was. We had 61 total air yards. 61. 61 yards. So if you're unfamiliar with air yards, that is just how many yards the ball traveled in the air from the line of scrimmage to where the guy caught it. But it gets better. We had 80 intended total air yards 80 the ball at a max including balls we tried to complete flew a total of 80 yards in the air and we threw for you know 160 something that is unbelievable almost impossible to duplicate honestly like that can't have that really can't even happen again it's crazy normally you might throw for 300 and your air yards are like 400 410 415 intended air yards right unbelievable so A, super mirage. B, great job running an east-west offense. But in the second half, when Tennessee said, we are done with that stuff, you are not going to get that anymore, we had a total of four first downs, two of which came by penalty. Mm-hmm. One was an egregious late hit on Mertz. The second was a fourth down and one that was well-earned by Billy. Credit to where credit's due there, Alan. Fourth and one. We talk about this a lot. When you're in the lead like that, Timeouts don't matter that much to you anymore. What does matter is converting and keeping the ball. Why do coaches not always attempt to go for it, especially in college? Because you know you just take a delay a game and punt. And credit to Billy for doing it. Because Tennessee jumps off sides. It was a big moment in the game. Earned Florida more time. Right? And it was two of their four total first downs in the second half. So that's not great. Further than that, we already talked about the rushing yards issue. But then lastly, once again, 15 games in on film, Florida's receivers are not open. They're just not open. We have no vertical threat of any kind. And yet again, and I hate to keep saying this because, again, the Redditors love this, but the route combinations that are on film frequently reside with two or three guys right next to each other. Like, completely impossible to explain. On multiple third downs, we had four routes sent out. Three of the four were short of the first down marker, and they were hitches, where there's no chance that they're going to really make that first down unless they make a heroic tackle break with their back to the first down line. 
It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. So I think the 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 mirage part of this is, does this game plan lead to more wins versus teams down the road? No, it does not. Teams have seen this now. They know this is how Billy engineered a run game, and they're going to do what Utah did, which is the right thing to do, and say, look, if you want to beat us, you are going to have to throw the ball between 8 and 20 yards consistently all day long. And if you can't, you're going to lose. We are not going to allow you to scheme us with all the East-West stuff. And lastly, what I want to say is this. We said last year, Florida had almost no screen game. We didn't have screens to running backs, despite our running backs being excellent. Well, happy to report this season, which we've seen, the screen game to running backs has been fantastic, and it largely helps Florida win this football game. So good with the bad there. So I think Florida is, as we've said, Alan, three-legged stool, back to conclude here. Florida, without talking about the defense yet, seemingly has two of those things covered. Great culture. Great recruiting, on-field performance. We'll talk about the defense, but I think you can guess what we're going to say about that. Talk about the offense, the rushing unit. Awesome. We've talked about that. I'm going to praise Billy all day long about that. The guy knows what he's doing. He's a great run game coordinator. The passing, including in this game, is not anywhere near championship level. That's not because of Graham Mertz. It's not. All right, We're not there yet. We're not there yet. So this game would have been that much better for me as an analyst if in the second half we had started to take advantage of the fact that Tennessee now is marching everyone in the box, which by the way, Allen, is what you want. Ultimately, as a coordinator, you want to get the numbers so slanted that the odds, the percentage odds of your success running or passing the ball increase. So if a team, lastly, thinks you pass the ball really well and you're facing five-man boxes, then you run it all day. And I'm all about that. Run it every single time and kill them. But if you're going to face eight-man boxes... It's time to pass. It's what you dream of. It's it, This is proof, Alan, that your running offense is really freaking good. And now you take advantage. You take advantage. And so far, unfortunately, we've seen Florida be unable to take advantage, including in this game where they tried multiple times to run play action. Couldn't hit it. Couldn't get it. Couldn't open it up. And we're seeing a, that concerns me for the long run. Hence why we talked about, obviously, Florida changing their OC. The really exciting thing, however... Really exciting thing is it seems like maybe wave a wand, give Florida a good passing game. Look at the tape of this game. This Florida team could have a really bright future if you can change that one thing and then special teams. So Florida's closer to a very sustainable, excellent football team than we have been. That's the takeaway of all that. Take the good, take the bad, take what's on film. It's not wrong to celebrate this game and then also say what we saw in the second half is not championship level. That's not wrong. That's right. That's what the coaches should do too. That's not pouring cold water on a great win. It's the reality of what we're going to need with a lot of hard games left. Right. So this is not necessarily execution issue in the second half. Obviously, this is a a stylistic coaching. It wasn't just a stop being able to do it right or execute on it. Uh, A good rule of thumb is if you want to gauge of aggressiveness from a team, this is not one-to-one but uh are you passing on first down when the team expects you to run or are you running on first down when the team expects you to run and that's basically a a judge of how conservative you're being there are definitely times to be very conservative and not risky and just you know if you're up three scores with five minutes run run punt is great do that every time if you would like with a lot of clock left, there's a, someone on Twitter, I think, was like, there's a lot of time left for some stupid stuff to happen. And you can see Tennessee can score in an instant 
if they get their alignments right. And man, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about just the coaching of that. But it it wasn't just the offense bogged down and couldn't do it. And grammar stopped being able to play well. We stopped being able to run well. We just were not calling the types of things that were going to put us in a position to be successful. And you know, and I think if you're also looking at something a little more improvement again, the right side of the line in pass pro is just not there yet. Uh, it doesn't mean they can't get there with some more reps and some more snaps and, but that's a, that's a problem. If you do want to throw the ball down the field a bit more, uh, that I don't know if they're going to hold up to the kind of pressure. So t- Tennessee's defensive line is one of the best we'll see probably all year from pass rush perspective. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So and Florida negated that with quick game, which is good. Right. We've talked about quick game. Florida had, you know, seven, seven snaps of what you would consider to be like a zero or one drop game. That's a plus. Um, so most of that to, stuff occurred in the first half. Yeah, you have to take that into account too, as far as game plan in terms of the air yards and things like that. All right, so that they, it was also advantageous to lean into that and not expose your quarterback to the kind of hits that would lead to game changing plays or injury yeah. or well. So, well, and also it's important to note too, like if if Napier was like a history of being Bill Belichick style mm-hmm. on offense, where one game you run it fifty times and, one, and then you just say, yeah, great game plan. It was that takes nothing away from it. The first half game plan was great, but. Like we said, and we've seen, the history of Billy would indicate there's a weakness still here. This Definitely. game did not do anything to address that weakness on film. That's the answer. Great win. Nice stuff. Good work. Didn't address the weakness. Florida played to their strengths, and Billy really leaned into his strengths and got it to work, which is great. That's great. A couple of notes on players. Uh, Kingsley was a significant addition back to the offensive mm-hmm. line. He made a big, big big difference on Florida's ability to run the ball. I mean, significant difference. So I think it's safe to say he's an uninjurable moving on throughout what we've talked about. We've, yeah, we've seen have him back. He needs to be there. He has to be there. I don't know if Florida wins this game without him. That's how significant he was. And he is not Alan, like an all sec level center, but for Florida and where we are right now and who's behind him with the young guys, he is like a must have guy. Essential. Must have guy. Also, um, Ricky, if you're listening, <laughs> I know Ricky's not listening, but we need better routes out of you, Ricky. The routes he's putting on film are really sloppy. Not loving what I'm seeing from him. I don't know if he's just got the number one jersey on and he's like razzle dazzling stuff, but they're not clean. They do not look good. They're not crisp. He's often not in the right window. He's often late. Multiple times, Merch is ready to throw. He's running his routes late. He needs to clean that up. That's not looking ideal. Uh, uh, so, you know, outside of that, the offense did enough to get the dubs. They knocked him out essentially in the first half, and they turned it over to the star of the show. Yes, I'm ready to talk about they this. They handed it to the star of the show and said, hey, take us home here, boys. Finish the business. Get it done. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I love this. I'm so excited to talk about this defense and not just a solid defense, but a really impactful defense too. So... 8 of 15 on third down. Which sounds not great, because it's not. Tennessee was coming in at like 32%. Right. But a lot of that was like, we'll talk about. A lot of that was the second half for Tennessee, mm-hmm. even though Florida was all over those plays. Execution, not design. Which is what you want to see as an analyst. Execution, not design. And the execution was often barely missed, not significantly missed. Sure. And again, I, we probably should caveat that a lot. Is like This is a very young defense as well in terms of both age and you know amount of time on the field and a lot of spots. So Tennessee's 0 of 3 on fourth down. That's probably the most significant stat. When Florida needed a fourth down stop, they got it. Tennessee piled up some yards, though. 387, 287 passing, 100 rushing, one pick, which was – that was the first of the season. I think that's the first one Joe Milton's thrown in forever. First and, that, and forever, yeah. It's not, like, not a you guy know, who throws picks. And, you know, this one was essentially – like a punt because if you got his arm hit throwing the ball and it floats up in the air to Devin Moore, who does a nice job with it. Uh, so they had one sack, three tackles for loss, eight pressures. Joe Milton is looks like a pretty nice day. 20 of 34 for 287, two TDs, five carries, the interception kind of fluky. But if you, as we said before, I've opened the show with this. When you watch the game, when you see what they can do versus what they were frequently doing, it's like, man, they do not believe this guy can do it. All right. The big storyline with Tennessee and Florida over the last we've I feel like we've talked about this more than anybody else I've I've seen is do you have the guts to play enough man against Tennessee to make them sweat? And can you stop them running the ball alongside of that? And I'm I I watched this, I watched it happen on the field. I loved everything that I saw. I'm gonna let you take it away here. Did Austin Armstrong do enough? schematically to frustrate Tennessee. I mean, my heart is is full. <laughs> uh, Coach Ham, he's a superstar right now in the defensive profession. He he is him, in fact, is the reality. Coach Ham is him. We The best part about this, Alan, is, you know, for years we've done this podcast and we've come on and said, please make this happen. Please, someone do this. Please use these tactics. And you're in the swamp and you're like, unbelievable, it's happening. Like, we're doing it. We're doing what makes seemingly obvious sense on film. And then the hard part, and this is why Coach Ham is him, the hard part is actually getting your players to do it. Yeah. There's a lot of football guys. There's a ton of football people that can look at film and say, this is probably a pretty good idea. We should do it. But to get your players to do it is unreal. And on the film review, I go into extensive detail to show you how Tennessee threw the absolute book at Florida. By the end of this game, they gave them everything they had formation-wise. They were doing all they could to mix up Florida's Coverages, looks, and Florida was so quick to communicate what to do, how to do it, where we're going, how we're doing it. It was an absolute master class 
in game three of his tenure with a bunch of new dudes and freshmen playing. Are you kidding me, Alan? This is sensational. This is so good that it might already be time to put Coach Ham in the top five of active DCs in all of college football. It was that good. That good. We had said these three things leading to this game. One, Florida's going to use the tight front, mm-hmm. which is a thing of beauty, and it's going to deny the inside running. Give me, give me uh, And the tight front, yeah. once again, is going to be three defensive linemen that are going to stay inside your tackles. So, you know, if you look at the offensive line, the furthest guys out wide are your tackles. They're going to stay inside, and they're going to control the interior part of that running yeah, lane. You are not running through the middle. Here. And then your linebackers are going, to, are going to crash those gaps and take care of the interior. You've got to push things outside. Then Florida's going to use either their nickel and Jaden Hill or their split safety, one of their safeties coming down and filling the other side in run defense and playing sometimes conflict defender, where before, Alan, we've highlighted how horrible Florida's spacing was with the conflict defender. It was perfect, all game long, perfect. In between the receiver they were guarding and the left or right tackle, able to guard both. I mean, everything was just like perfect. But the tight front did its job. Tennessee could not run versus Florida's five-man boxes. On top of that, Florida was able to do something we saw Georgia do, which I said, I don't even know if we can really do that yet, which is they ran some four-man boxes when Tennessee was six versus four, and Milton couldn't run the ball. So Milton's stat of five carries for six yards cannot be slept on. There you go. Cannot be slept on. Unbelievable job by Florida. Austin Armstrong's game plan all reduced down to the very simple numbers of what to do was this. He was confident that Florida could play minus two men in the run game and win the entire game, and he was totally right. So if Tennessee had seven in the box, Florida had five. If they had eight, Florida had six. They had nine, Florida had seven. Florida always played, except for the exception, like two or three plays, two men down in the box, and they owned Tennessee in the running game. Tennessee's best players are their running backs. They had almost nowhere to go. If they broke outside, they were being tackled. I mean, this is, again, is a master class of how to play defense versus Tennessee. I think it's also something other teams that are athletic like Florida are going to copy. And lastly, we talked about Pitt and Georgia's different strategies, right? They both played man. Pitt had to play a lot of cover zero because Pitt does not have the athletes up front that Florida does. So they would use extra players in the box in the form of safeties to stop the run and then just have to play empty on the back end. Florida was often able to play cover two man like Georgia did, two high safeties, man across the board and send a light box in because they could stop the run. That's a huge advantage versus Tennessee. And as we also said, we felt like Milton was his own worst enemy Heibel didn't trust him. Therefore, you could mix in more zone than you normally would have to, which is exactly what Florida did because Milton wasn't able to convert even versus looks that Tennessee typically would have taken advantage of. And that all leads to a masterclass. Lastly, the details were also right. We talked about this last year. We saw it this year. You generally want to play your corners in press and your slot defenders off of your receivers by five to six yards because they love to run those switching routes. Florida did it on almost every predictable passing play. I mean, it, it, I can't. Not a single thing on here that I would have done differently looking at it. It was perfect. It was absolutely a master class of play calling. If you take away the two bombs that occurred, Tennessee has almost no real production on top of that. It was an absolute grind it out affair for them. Just a grind out affair to gain any kind of yards. And in the second half of Florida just makes tackles they're making in the first half and puts guys down. Most of their third down conversions do not result in first downs. The numbers look even better. So this scenario, three games in, Allen. These tactics, the ability to communicate this to the defense, the speed with which they played, starting a true freshman, a true, I got to play high school football last year in Jordan Castle, having a guy at the star, which is the nickel, right, for us, 
Jaden Hill, who we loved, love this guy pre-knee injury. Never played the Super star. competent at nickel. Finally, after years of not having one since Chauncey Gardner, it was phenomenal. Super competent. It was not a weakness. It was a strength. He was an incredible plus in this game. I can't even say enough about it. I'm sitting it. here in a dream state with this defense. Numbers-wise, 44% man. We brought pressure 26% of the time. And it was an incredible day at the office. I think if, if Coach Ham is sitting right next to me right now, he wants some of those plays back where the defense were right there and didn't make a tackle, didn't make a play. And we'll talk about the big plays here in a second. But I can't glow enough about the job that was done here. In, in the time that we have done this podcast, we've seen some decent moments on defense. This is my favorite one ever for all the reasons we've talked about for years. This offense, this style, how people choose to play them, how Alabama chose to play them, how Georgia chose to play them. And now here we are at Florida running optimal tactics. And that is why we won the game. The defense won us this football game. They survived every single shot Tennessee threw at us, going for it on fourth down three separate times, denied all three times. Excellent stuff. Yeah, and we'll get to the big pass plays, but if you're going to play as aggressively as Florida is, you're you're sometimes going to get cooked. Like, you know, Jakeem Jackson, who has a bright future. Brew McCoy, which is he's an enormous wide receiver for Tennessee and just manhandles him down the route and, you know, big play. That's going to happen, right? You're going to get cooked on some of that. And then we can talk about the first drive a little bit later, but I never really felt like they're going to be able to consistently do something against this defense. They're going to pick up some plays. They're going to pick up some yards. Even their run yards, a lot of times, some of those first downs in the second half, everybody's there and somehow the offensive linemen basically like carry them for 10 yards in a pile. And it's like, okay, you can do that a couple times. That's not a sustainable offense either. And so I love the way they played. I love the mix of aggressiveness and tactics tactical you know efficiency and skill i felt so confident right i every time the defense rolled out i was expecting good things and when bad things happened i was like oh man that's a bummer it just shows you how dangerous tennessee is theoretically and how milton i don't think i've ever seen anybody like him he throws an absolute bullets that touchdown late to brew mccoy I don't, I don't know what the air yards were under that, but it looked like he was throwing it 20 yards. It was an absolute missile. And so <laughs> to have to deal with that guy, the threat of him putting it 70 down, yards down the field over your head is scary. But they didn't play scared. They dealt with it. Okay. Uh, here's the thing I'm so excited about as well. I've got a lot of exclamation points here. Linebackers. Scooby, Shamar, Scooby Williams is a guy I had totally written off after last year. He looks like a completely different player. All the pluses of him, his athleticism, his explosiveness, his reach are on display. He looks like he knows exactly where he's supposed to go. And since he does, he's a tough guy to deal with. And Shamar James, love this dude. Not just for his play, but if you're watching, we're we're pretty low in the field, so you can get a real sense of this. He is communicating. He is very aggressive in getting people lined up and making sure everyone knows. And you know, there's a lot of that going on with safeties and other things. But if you're, if I'm just looking at that, and I don't know what happened, looks like behind closed doors, but he seems to be a real leader there, and he stepped in the spot. So we're able to play guys like Scooby and Shamar, and not have to rely on Taraja Mitchell to play very many snaps. A guy who is capable but limited, which who we thought we were going to see all the time. And Scooby Williams has been a revelation. And to get those linebackers, I don't know. 
whether you want Jay Bateman, the linebackers coach, or this is an Austin Armstrong thing, but those guys, instead of being, oh, we're hoping that they're average, really made the defense go in a lot of ways. Yeah, this is definitely an, an Armstrong thing, uh, and that's because of the style with which Florida plays defense now. Scooby, and how Florida plays defense often, uh, and you can actually, for yourself, if you want to see how how this is done, Coach Ham has videos online where he talks about all of these techniques, especially simulated pressures and how he likes to play the run, and you can see it for yourself, but I'm way overly simplifying, and you see this with Scooby. In general, Florida's going to send one of their linebackers off an edge, most times off of an edge. And Scooby then is going to be the guy they use most frequently to do that because he is disgusting at it, especially if a quarterback breaks contained in the pocket or a running back gets loose out there or whatever. I mean, he is a missile coming downhill. He breaks down unbelievably well, breaking down meaning containing a guy who's in space. And to your point, Alan, he is so confident with what he's supposed to be doing. Exactly. And that's the communication part that's incredible, right? This guy, young guy, sophomore, um, last year was lost undersized seemingly this year knows exactly what is happening is dialed in is doing everything right it's all the right gaps all the time i mean it's unreal the transition that has occurred and so with shamar and with a freshman in jordan castell who's also showing everyone where to go and how to line up yeah i'll get to that in a second i want to talk um, some more about and him. then Jaden hill who's dialed in with what to do you have three really good communicators out there doing some awesome stuff uh, but the linebacking core, I mean, you just can't say enough about this. I mean, they were a super strength in this game. And also Florida, which we said, and we thought this last year, Florida was uniquely set up to play against Tennessee because that is when you want to actually have some really fast linebackers. And that's why you didn't see Taraj Mitchell play very often. And when you did, he gave up a crucial third down to Joe Milton late that Scooby would have erased him on because he doesn't have that kind of foot speed. He comes downhill, misses Milton. Um, you know, but if Scooby is like doesn't know where to go, is right. in the round, you can't play him. But he does, and so those linebackers are flying around again. They frequently played most of the game in a five man box. You're on an island in there, man. Five v seven, five v seven. You're on an island. It's you and your boy Shamar next to you, and your three guys in front of you, and seven guys coming at you, including quarterbacking run. Florida shut that junk down. That's a remarkable, remarkable transition from one year to year to next year. Incredible. I loved it. All right, Jordan Castell, who saw on Twitter. SEC freshman of the week, well-deserved. This guy looks like a total veteran out there, especially in the terms of like what we've seen from safeties in the previous regimes, or even if you have a senior out there who I think is, you know, would be pretty good. It's like, I'll take Jordan Castell over them a lot of times. Cause he looks like he knows what he's doing. Made a huge, one of the biggest plays in the game, that pass breakup where I think, uh, Billy Napier in the press conference today says, you know, a lot of times young guys gather, they, they panic, they fall down, they, they pass interfere just to like not give that up. He played it calmly. Probably right pass thing. interfered. Yeah. You know, but, but not at the point of attack early. And then the receiver had a chance to regain composure. So I think the refs let it go because of that. It was sort of like a no, but at the end game. when the ball's coming down, sometimes Perfect. it's just tackle no, it's guy. unbelievable technique at the end. I mean, it was, it was an, it was like a, a, a fourth year, Guy who's played every game. I mean, just so composed to 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 you know bat that ball away the way he did at the end, and also really composed to hold the guy when he was beat, mm-hmm. because you'd much rather give up that penalty than a touchdown. So the whole thing about it was a veteran play from start to finish, and he's where he needs to be in the run game more often than not, and physical, but still has the speed. I mean, I can see you see why they started the kid immediately. Who is the real deal, and he's going to be a player for us for several years. Oh, I mean, I think, you know, and you'll see on film, too, there's some hesitation, especially coming down to tackle to finish some plays. In the second half, there's two plays where if he comes downhill confidently, 
and does what he's going to do probably next game as quickly as he learns. He'll finish a hit that someone's wrapping up underneath him, and those are not first downs. But I think he's a little conservative. Okay, when do I come in? When do I not? Uh, but this is remarkable. From yeah, a true th- freshman. those are all nitpicks. For no, no, that's, that's what we're saying. Games, he's, yeah. His game is so good that this is remarkable that he's already at this point. But look, I think he's trending. He's trending to be obviously, you know, a freshman All-American, I think for sure, a first teamer. And then right now, uh, because he can cover, he can cover. His ceiling is is potentially an All-American safety. I mean, that's what we're looking at right now. And we have not had great safety play for quite some time. And you're you are reaping the benefits of that. Now, look, Florida's defense requires two excellent safeties. We have one. We're weak on the other one. Miguel Mitchell's out there playing his heart out. Not ideal for Florida. He doesn't cover very well. Uh, and you saw that obviously the first touchdown that they scored. Something Tennessee puts on film all the time. Something we showed last week actually gave an example of this exact route they run. If they get man, they're often going to run a crossing route, an early switch. So either the outside receiver or the inside receiver in their wide split will run to the interior, then the other receiver will cross to the exterior, right? And if you handle it correctly, you have the right spacing. And if you're the off defender, in this case, Mitchell in the first touchdown, you make sure that you back up and then you exit to the, in his case, the sideline side. You stay on top of that go route. If he does, there's no play there. He gets caught watching. Brew McCoy runs right through him. You know, for me, that's not a pick. To me, it really wasn't. Like, Brew McCoy has a right to the space. He's running a route. Miguel's standing right there. Never makes any real, from Never play. really makes any attempt to move. Brew's not blocking. He runs through him. There's contact. But to me, people that are calling that a, a pick play, that's a classic rub play. Tennessee runs 10 times a game. They almost never get called for it. They know how to do it. But Miguel Mitchell just froze, and he gave up a huge play. Shamar James, on the other hand, on film, a linebacker, multiple times faced that same route combination and was clean as could be. In fact, all the rest of Florida's defenders were as clean as could be on that. We've seen now three games through that Miguel struggles in pass coverage. And he's the best option, I think, probably Florida has. it. They don't trust Kamari Wilson. Um, We don't have another guy yet. But ideally, what you want to have are two Jordan Castells. That's the goal. You want two guys who can cover, who can tackle, who are smart, and who can do both. So I think Florida's got one. And then Miguel, who can tackle, is physical, not quite comfortable covering. So Florida works around that, uh, but still a much better safety scenario than we've had before. And again, he's it's his third start. Oh, he's fine. That's not that's not yeah. to, that's more to illustrate that like that's what you typically would expect from a young guy is like stuff Miguel's doing, but like Jordan almost never does that. That's outrageous. Yeah, and general. that's what makes Tennessee so dangerous when they're clicking is they put you in those stress points over and over and All over the time, again. and Florida and make, made it look not stressful, but it was, I promise you. Those are stress points for most teams. For Florida, it was like a walk And you park. don't do it perfectly, it's a 40-yard ball. It's a massive play. It's a layup. It's easy. Man, I loved it. I I feel like I just want to stay here and like <laughs> right? really just, just live, in this. live in this. I love it. All right. Uh, other bright spots or notable performance that we haven't mentioned yet. And we haven't talked about the defensive line. Cam no, Jackson, I mean, the defensive people. line was special in this game i mean again most of the time with three guys going in there just mm-hmm. three all kinds of pressure and often it doesn't show up on the stat sheet right i think florida had eight pressures in the game but infinitely more if you're considering how often they were in the backfield something that on film it just warms my heart on most plays florida's defensive tackles never get pushed off the line they are either holding the line flat even or they're pushing into the backfield which is why tennessee can't run most importantly the gap control is unbelievable it's like nfl like i don't know how in the world we would go from last year to this year it's magic 
Like these guys get it. They're playing at an NFL level with how they hold their gaps. They are 11 guys working as one. There are three guys on the line working as one. There are four working as one. It's epic. And again, Sapp was just a monster in this game. Like awareness of putting your hand up in passing lanes, bull rushing off the edge, blowing by Tennessee's linemen, um, whether he's inside or outside, really wreaking havoc. And then a massive hat tip to Princely. Yeah. They were so creative with how they used him to even the numbers out. And you may have seen him continually flexed out on one of the sides playing defense versus either their tight end or even a slot receiver sometimes, which you may have thought that looks crazy. That was Florida's numbers game. If they brought that guy in, Princely came back in and it would be six versus eight in the box. If they flexed him out, he would go out. It would be five versus seven. And he consistently was in the right place, doing the right thing, playing a low hole zone defender like a boss. And that was awesome. It was a really great flex weapon to be able to utilize him that way. And if he was able to pin his ears back and rush, he was wreaking havoc. I mean, I just can't say enough. I mean, it was such a complete game plan. And again, all these guys are working together. That's the best thing about it. They're all working together. And that's why it's working on the D-line. If one guy goes hero mode and decides they want to make a tackle on their own, they give up their gap integrity and they they get gouged. It's not happening this year. I'm glad you mentioned Princely because I wanted to bring him up and I forgot. Uh, yes, watching him move out there to cover a tight end or even a slot receiver was like, man, we're doing some weird stuff here. Is this going to get us in trouble? And I, after the first quarter, I stopped thinking about it because he was doing it so well when he was out there. And then you saw his athleticism of chasing down Joe Milton on that two-point conversion, which was a big play where he takes a great angle and – Uses, I mean, a lot of top ends. I mean, Milton's not a slow dude, and he caught him and just for no gain, snuffed that out completely. It's incredible. It's like a, it's like a cheetah flying across the open terrain, just haunting his prey. I mean, it was an incredible play, right? And so that's his athleticism, and you need to see that. But also, as you said, doing something they don't normally ever ask him to do, just to float out there and play in space there, and they. I don't think it was ever a problem. No, it was, it was, it was a plus. He's excellent. His, he's like his understanding of how to play that role is excellent. Uh, I mean, really like I can't say enough about it. I mean, what a weapon. And this is what, this is what good staffs do. They take what they have. They notice their unique resources and gifts and they put them in positions to succeed. Like we talked about coaches jobs are to have the players win or lose the games. That's I love it. it. The players will win or lose because the coaches put them in positions to be successful. And man, did the defense do that? Yeah. Cam Jackson looked great. Saw some flashes from McClellan. Every you, I mean, you could probably just mention every guy that played. There's a Dez. Big Dez had some Watson play where the running back goes by him a little bit, and he turns around and grabs his jersey and just says, no, come back. I mean, still gained four yards on the play, but I don't think I've ever seen anybody do that before. Incredible strength. And then Big yeah. Dez is the one who hits Milton on the pick. He yeah. gets free. There's pressure. There's, again, it's 11 working as one. Dez holds his gap. He's getting double teamed. And there's pressure coming off the left, which causes Milton to step up. Dez shakes free of his double in his face pressure. Easy pick. I mean, that's just awesome. Great job by everybody. Anything else to mention other than, I mean, so I hope that <laughs> we're so high right now. We are just like sky high. There's still a lot of season left. There's other tests. There's other stresses to come. And not that everyone's going to play perfectly all season, but this was an amazing performance. So not that every week they're going to come in like as a clean it is, but for this big of a game against Tennessee, against an opponent that challenges you some, in some unique ways, they they definitely uh, stepped up and did everything they were asked to do. Yeah, I'm happy to go on record saying that you can cement for as long as Coach Ham is here, this defense is going to be rock solid. And that does not mean that every game you perform awesome, right? Even the greatest defenses like Georgia will have games when they get beat. I mean, Georgia had a rough first half versus South Carolina. 
That's not what that means. But what it means is you can rest assured the tactics, the in-game changes, the communication, the understanding of how the defense plays the game is going to be at a very high level. Therefore, the EV of Florida's defense versus other teams' defenses is going to be high. Each week moving forward, as Florida gets better personnel and people that are more suited to their scheme, you can expect Florida to have an advantage with their defense. And that is huge. as a massive building block we talked about earlier. In my opinion, Florida has cemented what will become a championship caliber defense. So now you've got your three-legged stool, the third part, on-field performance, the defense right now, in my opinion, sewed up. Now, how long do you keep the staff intact? If you're Dabo for a long, long time, right? If not, if you're Nick Saban, it could be a couple of years. But the bottom line is, I think you can put a big fat check mark next to that defense. And maybe that's early. I don't think so. We've seen it on film. We talked about it right away with Utah, right? On film, we came out right away and said, this is sustainable. This is sustainable. This is not a mirage, not a fluke. It's repeatable. And Florida's versatile. The tactics they use in this game are not tactics they'll use this weekend or next weekend. They can do a lot. And that is remarkable. So the takeaway here is Coach Am is the guy. I think he's the dude. I think he's a superstar. I think we've got a special guy on staff. Uh, he could be if he, you know, he could be a guy for a long, long, long time in the game of football. So I, it's funny how, as you're going in, you're watching against Utah, which is an undermanned team, right? Still an established team. They did what they needed to do. Uh, you know, Mini State is totally overmatched. So you've put great stuff against two, either undermanned or overmatched opponents. Yeah, bad first half versus Utah, but second half was shut down. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. And then from then on, it's been shut down basically. And so some some stuff that you're hoping to see, now you're playing a much more dangerous opponent. Does that translate, right? And I think they passed another test here. And I think this team is going to go as far as this defense takes them. I think if I'm assigning, uh, you know, possibilities for, for success at the beginning of the season, I'm hoping, at least at this point, more from the offense. And hope we're hoping the defense would be mid-tier, right? Can they? We did the over-under as like a 50th unit, right? We're going to get to their ceiling in a little bit, but I think this team is going to go as far as the defense takes them. Yeah, and right now they're top 10 in multiple categories, right. which so is still early, but early, but again, all right, sustainable. The thing that is continuing to plague this team, it didn't cost them the game, but this was rough. Special teams. Unsustainable. Yeah. <laughs> Adam Mahalik, 0 for 1 on extra points, 0 for 1 on field goals, and neither of them even close, getting blocked. When the kicks are that bad, I have to. I usually assume, oh, the protection broke down or the snap, the snap was bad. No one hits a kick like that. Well, I guess the proof is in the pudding there. They switched out the kicker, put in Trace Mack, and you know, since his first extra point into the moon, they're like, don't get this one blocked. Kick it higher. He's the win into the upper deck there. Obviously, big leg on that kid. And the reason you have Mahalik in there is like you think, okay, he's more accurate. He's a safer guy from closer distance. But if that's not true, there's no use to having him out there. Now, Trace Mack is a little dinged up, I think, in from the uh, presser. So we'll see. Not a long-term thing. We'll see if we, what happens for him out there. And Jeremy Crosshaw, who's really excellent last year, has been disappointing. I mean, not every punt is bad, but a few more shanks than you would like. Had three punts for only a 35.7 average. That's not going to get it done for a team that wants to play defense and ball control and, to use Billy's phrase, complimentary football. This is not complimenting the other two phases. And I don't know what you do about him. Um, I don't know if you have another guy on the the team with his level of 
you know, ceiling there in terms of what he can do punting the ball. So, yeah, you put your arm around him and say, let's get you right. What do you need? Do you need like fluffy meditative music? Do you need some hard rock? Do you need a smoothie? Like tell me this week what you need to get your mind right, because this is a get right week for him. He needs to hopefully we don't punt versus Charlotte, but he needs to get back to where he was. Because to your point, Florida's strength is not scoring points, but Florida's strength this year is probably going to be their defense, as we've already seen. And that requires field position. And so he was excellent last year. Hopefully he fixes that. He snaps out of this funk. It is very possible for punters to do that. On the kicking side, uh, Caleb Sturgis, who has hosted this pod before, good friend of mine, my pickleball partner as well, was texting back and forth with me on his own accord about some thoughts, some ruminations in the kicking scenario. A couple of good takeaways. One, he had mentioned that in college, and this always sort of mystifies NFL kickers, in college, most teams kick from either seven or seven and a half back from the line of scrimmage, where in the NFL, like every single team, all 32, kick from eight. Now, this has to do with protection in some regards. Like, it's slightly harder to protect an edge block from eight. Uh, However, every single NFL team does it. Seven, though, is close. Most college teams will use seven and a half. Some might use seven. But seven, and Caleb talked about this pretty extensively, does increase the odds that you get blocked off the center. And teams are loading up that block off the slight left or slight right of the kicker because Florida is close. So, uh, you know, Caleb noted that. Also noted that Trey Smack has elite, you know, which we know, leg strength, but that in his opinion, from last year to this year, his ball flight, really consistent. So something worth noting, uh, Caleb's a guy who I think is fascinating. You talk about kicking with Caleb, and it's really interesting because he's very scientific about it. He talks a lot about how NFL kickers, they have very little variance off the foot. Every ball is struck kind of the same. College kickers, oftentimes big leg kickers like Trey Smack, ball comes off his foot and it looks different every time. But he was noting that he thought it looked really nice, actually, very consistent each time here. So for Florida special teams that are not so special, we need the punting to get better. We have to have the kicking get better. I think at this point in time, you give Trey Smack a chance to play himself out of it. He's the more talented guy anyway and see what happens. And then, you know, all in all, uh, obviously with the extra point issues Florida's had, mm-hmm. They need to clean that up. And maybe this is the week to take Caleb's strategy and say, you know what, let's let's take more of an NFL approach, go eight back. And, well, if uh, you're going to employ smack two and he, it, He's got he a doesn't monster need the leg. distance, he can kick it 100 yards in the air. And still yeah, it doesn't matter. Make an extra you know? point. So follow that and get your protection right on the edge, which in college, very few teams can block off the edge anyway. This is, I feel like, a soapbox for me now is, you know, college coaches don't have, or college programs, even elite ones like Florida, don't have kicking coaches nothing at all almost nothing at all no one even knows how to teach the kickers which is that that's a fascinating conversation with caleb now why don't they just employ you for some contractual amount of money and you come in every so often and yeah even even picking your kicker like hearing caleb talk about how teams choose which kicker to get based on a camp or something else there's no actual nfl kicker i mean here's caleb lives in gainesville call him up hey do you like this kicker this one he'll go watch him kick 20 kicks and tell you how that guy's that guy's much more promising but it's it's wild kickers matter a lot I mean, pay Caleb to come in once a week. Yeah, right? Billy or Scott, if you're hearing this, Caleb's got some time. Tell him to come in once a week and work with the kickers. I don't think it would take a lot of cash, and we got the cash. And also think of recruiting when you want the next number one guy. Do you want an ex-NFL guy who is is a baller, like working with you once a week, coming in, making sure your head's right, making sure your kicks are looking good, and just giving you feedback? Because otherwise, no one is there. All right. We solved it. Pitch for for Caleb unintentionally. Let's... Let's, Let's just tell Caleb to call them if they're not going to call him. Yeah, Caleb, okay. get on the phone right now and dial. All right, All right. good work. Um, 
coaching decisions. First one for both sides here, but the first one for the Gators, uh, last possession, trying to bleed the clock out all the way down to zero, gets to fourth down, nine seconds left, I believe. Yeah, nine Something seconds around left there. That. That's exactly right. The Gators choose not to punt and instead do the kind of quarterback dancing around, Try to let's try to end the game there. That makes sense with like four seconds where you can more reasonably get all the time off the clock. You see what happens when you try that strategy. You get your quarterback almost killed and inside a brawl. I was trying to come up with a reason not to punt there. Even if you tell the punter if everything goes wrong, just eat it and like lay down, which is essentially what you're doing with your quarterback anyway. Can you give me that like counterfactual? Like, what? Well, that's not the right phrase, but give me the narrative or the reasons not to punt there. I can't because I'm punting every single time. The game is also just over. It's over. So also, if you're going to take the knee, just take a knee. Like you don't need to run around and waste the extra three seconds. seconds. I mean, if you think about taking a knee, there's nine seconds left, drop back, take a normal knee. That takes two, three seconds off the clock. There's six seconds left. Tennessee runs a play, scores a touchdown, let's say. That play takes five seconds in the very least possible amount of time it could take from that moment. There is all of one second left. They kick an onside kick, which will take that one second. Game is over. So like mathematically, it's over no matter what you do, but you just punt. You run your kicker out. You quickly punt it. If they return it for a touchdown, the game is over. Or you put your backup quarterback in and you take it. And there's a million things that should have been done differently. And I think with the shenanigans that went down, uh, it's possible that like Billy was overthinking it. He was tight for a win. And he's like, all right, it's, it's, how much time is left? Okay, well, Tennessee... Maybe they're going to do this or that, or I don't really know. And it looks like they're going to have the clock run down. And I'll just, you know, fourth down, I'll just I'll just kind of end the game and then see what happens. But ultimately, punt. Punt the ball. Punt. That's yeah. the answer. There's no There's downside to no punting. No downside to punting. Punt quickly. Get out of there. Don't do that. Uh, all right. Back to you, the coaching decision. If you're hypo, why do you call that timeout? I don't know. I, I think you're – someone said this or whatever this is – maybe in our football thread, like maybe just panic, take it. Cause you're not sure. Is there some scenario I'm not thinking about or something I could do? And you're like, just call it. What's the worst that could happen? I have it. I don't, <laughs> I don't think, I think he just called it just cause he had it. That's I think he did. And with. you know, we were on the side where we could see him and I don't, I don't have visual proof of this, but from my mind's eye, I watched cause I was curious because he hadn't called one earlier. Typically you would call one right away mm-hmm. and see if the offense does something stupid, put pressure on them to throw a pass or overthink it. He waited all the way till the end. The ref looks at him. He makes no gesture. The ref turns back. And then that's when Florida begins to celebrate because Billy's looking. You can see the angle on ESPN as Billy looking at him. And he takes the headset off because the ref turns like he would to indicate that the coach is not going to call timeout. Then it looks like Heupel says something to him. The ref then gives him the timeout. And that's why a couple extra seconds go off the clock during this time period. And that's when Billy puts headset back on. He's pointing, saying, no, wait a minute. He called timeout. And all that ensues. So I think if I had to guess, he's a human. He's frustrated. If you're a Tennessee coach, you got to beat Florida, right? Like Florida, like that at the swamp, especially. He wanted to be the guy that came in and beat Florida for the first time in 20 years in the swamp. He wanted that on his mantle. Doesn't get it. Things did not go the way he wanted to. He got outclassed, in my opinion, by a young 30 year old coordinator making a name for himself. There's a lot of frustrating things going on there. He's probably frustrated at Joe Milton because he can't execute the stuff he wants him to execute. And he just calls a frustration timeout. Forget it. I'm calling a timeout. All that being said, 
credit where credit is due here, he immediately apologized to Billy at midfield. The first thing he said to him is, I'm sorry for that. And therefore, hey, you know what? Forgive the guy. It was a bad choice. Hopefully he learns from it, doesn't do it again. It was foolish and unsportsmanlike, but he apologized right away. And uh, I give credit for that. Totally. In that moment. So that's that for me. Right, Water under the bridge. There are consequences. We saw a boxing match and the sidelines clear, but ultimately learn a lesson, carry on from there. And uh, you know what? I kind of I kind of like it when people are salty when I beat them. So for me, I'm like, yeah, let's go be salty. I love it. You care. So let's go ahead and talk about the end of the game there. Very weird. It felt like a Lord of the Rings ending. It felt like the game ended like five different times. Florida celebrates. Tennessee runs off the field. The referees come back. I realize there's some procedural stuff, but that was wild. Like the whole fight, like again, both coaches exposing their players unnecessarily to risk by you know, hypo calling timeout Billy not punting there. And yeah, if you knock the quarterback over unnecessarily, you're going to cause a fight. Also, if you're the defense, what are you supposed to do? He's running around with the ball. The goal is to tackle him. I didn't think it was that egregious, although maybe you just like let the game go. But they're instruct that's not their choice, right? The coach can tell them just back off. But if they don't tell them that, the guy's the ball, you gotta tackle him. Now, I, I don't condone any of the fighting, the brawling. It mostly stayed under control. And then there's this meet, you know, there's a meetup. There's ADs talking to referees and pro and Tennessee. They come back. And here's where I'll give Hypo a little more credit here. If you watch who he sent out on that play, it was like a bunch of guys who've never gotten on the field before and they snap it and kneel it. They didn't try to do something dumb or throw a touchdown or, you know, I think he sent all of those guys out there. So the starters weren't back out there in the face of the guys who were taunting. Well, Milton earlier. wound up being out there. Which right, at the last funny. second. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Milton, Joe Milton's not going to go fight anybody. No, no. Well, it's not, not that we know of. Yeah. But yeah, Scott, actually. I talked to Scott. Okay. Because we wondered what was Scott talking about yeah. with the Tennessee athletic director. And they are both trying to end the game, which is what we thought. Tennessee and Florida were talking to the refs saying, can't we just end this game? And, and the refs said no. They cannot. You cannot. Which you can't, obviously. You can't. I mean, there's still, they're still time left on the clock. But to your point, also, Heupel didn't make it worse. Like, he could have, I'm throwing in the end zone now. So he made a mistake, and then he he had to deal with the consequences of that mistake and look foolish on television and have to own that, and that was silly. But, you know, I think as a head coach, you want to model for your players how to handle losing. Uh, you want to handle it with grace. You want to hate losing, but you want to handle it with grace. And I think there's a time to concede. There's a time when you say, I've lost, I've been defeated, you defeated me, you were the better man today. I'm going to work my butt off to be better than you next time. And that's the right mentality. He messed that part up. Uh, we'll give him a pass. But only slightly, but, right? Correct. No, Calling I agree. Timeout is no, no not I mean, that it's fine. You have one. But, you know, it, it did open the door to things that didn't need to happen. If you just, it's over, concede it, let it ride. You mm-hmm. handshake, walk out, right? So we opened the door for that to occur. It's not, again, it's done with. You know, not a big deal here. But good job handling it once, yes. once all that happened. Yes, correct. Okay, just our little final thought segment here. We've we've hit this um, and the the too conservative nature in the second half. You know i I don't want to totally skewer Billy for this. As you said, he needed to win. Everyone needed to win. And I'm hoping the lesson he learns from this is not this is a good way to win a football game. That's the must champ way of thinking. Hey, I'm up ten nothing. That's enough. 
we're going into lockdown mode here on offense. The worst thing that an offense can do is make a mistake. And that's how you lose games. Rather than the offense is supposed to score points to win you the game. Again, I'm not calling for recklessness here, but that that can't be the way forward is you know, it doesn't mean you don't like don't call all the trick plays and get crazy. But you can throw in first down when they're loading the box if you have a quarterback who you trust as much as Graham Mertz. And so I'm, I'm hoping he takes the right lessons from this game and not the wrong lessons from this game. It's very important that you knock a team out before you become run the clock out. Super, super important, right? Game theory-wise, there's a moment where a team is still in a game. And if you are up by two scores, 2 nothing, the most dangerous lead in the sports, we've covered this before in this podcast, uh, if a team scores, you put, they put a ton of pressure on you when they get inside that two-score bubble for obvious reasons. And so that team was not knocked out yet. And that's what the offense does. It knocks them out. You're still trying to finish them. That increases your expected value. It increases your win rate. And to your point, Will Muschamp would get up two scores, trust the defense, and that, that costs you. That costs a lot of football coaches. And if it's reckless to throw the football when there's nine guys in the box, then don't coach football. Like in general, that's not reckless. That's smart. Now, I will say this on the, on the film review. I mentioned this Florida gets the ball in the red zone and they need to get a score to go up three scores. They go run, run, run to like a nine man, nine man, 10 man box. I would not have done that. However, at least in Billy's case, in this regard, the field goal sets you up three scores. So there is an argument there that if you are conservative by nature and you say, well, I need that third score, a field goal is fine, which was true. I'd prefer to knock down the touchdown, take momentum there, take a safe throw, trust your quarterback. But had that been different, so I want to say this, had Billy gone run, run, run into a Will Muschamp-like nine-man, nine-man, nine-man box and Florida was only up 10, the field goal goes up 13, I would be firing brimstone right now about what a bad decision that was. But to go from 16 to 19, three scores, actually important. So all that being said, we're going to hope it's a hall pass for him and that he recognizes that championship football teams cannot start staring at the clock with 15 minutes left in the third quarter. That is not how you win football games. Earlier than that, really. Yeah, but you cannot do it, right? 15 minutes left being the start of the second half. You know, you can't you can't play an entire half just clock watching. And Florida largely did that. And that's not sustainable. And I don't know if he learned from it. Again, I think he needed the win. He's got the win now. He's got some proof of his concept. Let's move forward and get it going. But again, for me, it's it's it. this all stems from the fact that Billy really trusts his run play design. I think he does not really trust his passing play design. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if behind closed doors, he's questioning his own passing offense at this level because he has not had, to use his words, the fruit of his labor in the passing game. It's just not there. So trust the running game. That's what's gotten you here. And get out of this game and then revisit. All right, let me let me go back a section because I'm, I'm missing out on a rant here. Oh, no. My favorite rant. Oh, Chasing the game point-wise. Oh, yes. That's right. I can't believe I almost believe left this, this out. I can't believe you did this, yeah. So we, we missed the extra point. Next time we score, we go for two. We don't get it. What happens later on? We're up 26 to 10 instead of 27 to 10. Which is significant, three scores. Yes, that's a meaningful distinction. Because you didn't let the game come to you. You're making that decision in the second quarter, I believe, or the first quarter rather than late in the fourth quarter when you really do need to start managing. You don't know what's going to happen in the game. This is a pet peeve of mine chasing them. Everyone wants to even up the scores there. It's like, what's the point? You don't know what's going to happen. They could miss like 
you know, 10 extra points in a row or whatever, and you're so glad you didn't go for two, just take the points early on. Remember this moment as well. Just take the extra point. Okay, thus endeth the rant. We're moving on here. I got a great question here for us. What is the ceiling of this defense? What can it become by season's end? I'm I love this. I think this can be a top 20 unit, top 10. It's right now a top 10 unit, right? Haven't been in the teeth of our schedule yet. This can be a unit that will lead you to way more victories than you thought, right? When you look at the balance of the schedule, the reason the schedule feels hard is there's so many, as we said, so many coin flip games, right? They're win or lose, who knows? But if you can have a dominant unit, you all of a sudden increase your chance of winning those games rather than two mediocre units versus two mediocre units. And it's like, man, that really is coin flip. If you have a dominant unit, all of a sudden you have a you have leverage in that game. One side of the ball that you're feeling like you have a major advantage in. Now, again, I think this defense is missing some pieces, right? We talked about pass rush. It's inexperienced and limited at safety to be like an all-time. This doesn't matter what you do on the other side of all this team. This defense will win you the game. It's not nearly there, but it can become a unit that is dominant in games against opponents that don't have prolific offenses because it's smart and it's put together and it makes sense. So this – I don't know what I don't have a number to put on it because I think those are, those numbers are often relative. But uh, this can be a unit that leads this team to many more victories than we've projected for them. I think looking at the schedule because there's a lot of quarterback question marks. I think the SEC is sus, as we've been saying. It's very possible this D could finish tenth. That's like the absolute ceiling. More likely, like you said, probably between twenty and twenty-five, which would be outrageously remarkable. Mm-hmm unbelievable to a million degrees but i think if we stay totally healthy 10th is is i think it's completely achievable again i think we have a superstar as our dc and this alan of course if you're already putting this together makes the counter argument for why i want billy to step aside from play calling stuff is the defense this is what it looks like when you have a gifted person running one side of the ball and i think billy's gifted in many ways and i think he's a great run game guy but the offense is not complete right? How about that? The defense from the front to the back end is complete. It's 11 working as one. And there's not some massive weakness that we're hiding. That is what you need. So I think it can be championship caliber. And look, you can win in college football with a top 25 defense. But I think for this year, Florida now has the alpha on their football team. It's the defense. This is the alpha. These are the guys you want to get you a win. The offense is now complimentary. Don't mess it up. Do what you can because we're not going to overnight become a you know Lincoln Riley led offense. But this defense is it, and so I think tenth is realistic. And I think part of what fuels that is when defenses know this goes back to the the Ravens in the NFL with Ray Lewis, one of the best defenses ever. When they know their offense is limited, they play even better because they have to, right? When you have a great offense, you can let off some. Hey, you know what? Whatever. I got Caleb Williams. I got Lincoln Riley at USC. It's cool. Maybe now take this playoff. We're going to win 50 to 20. Gonna, it doesn't matter. Who cares, right? No, no, you can't take this playoff. You can't do it. And so I think that will fuel this defense to better stats too. But yeah, unbelievable to be sitting here in game three talking about the ceiling of the defense and then being the alpha of this team given what we endured last year. Remarkable stuff. Uh, I don't think, I don't believe I'm overhyping it. You know, of course I'm a human. I'm prone to overhyping stuff and getting stoked about things, but I try my best to be coldly analytical. And there's a lot of reasons to believe we got something special brewing here. All right, so this feels obvious, but just checking it, Billy Napier's biggest win is at Florida? 
Yeah, it's like a layup. I mean, yeah. it's his first rivalry win, and it, it comes at a really crucial time. And also, you think of the recruiting hype this one game road. Right. And we talked about that. you got to keep this class together, right? That's the most important part of this this uh, formula. And the, the amount of goodwill this will build for recruiting, knowing that this period ends in early December, that's when you're signing everyone. This was your biggest home game till the Florida State game at home, like a really huge A million visitors there this weekend. And that's going to be a month worth of momentum. And Florida's schedule is favorable. The back half is brutal. So you can ride this into late October, let's say. Florida can have a record that's nice. Do those recruits probably lock in and pretty much cement for a five-week later signing date? Probably. This was huge, I think, for cementing next year's class and building momentum. So, yes, biggest win of Billy's tenure by far. Yeah, we haven't really gotten to the recruiting part of it. But, yeah, I think if you're – and, again, this is unknowable. Like, how much did that affect the class and retaining it? But I think this only can really help. And it's, as you said, well-timed. Okay. News. We mentioned Jordan Castell, SEC Freshman of the Week. Cam Jackson. Well-deserved SEC defensive lineman of the week, along with the rest of the line, played really well. Is a monster. He's just enormous and pretty twitchy for a guy that big. So that's fun for him. Congrats to both those guys. All right, let's look at the rest of the games from week two. Missouri repping the SEC here with the only big real SEC out-of-conference win. They, they beat a very nice Kansas State team. 30-27 on a 61-yard field goal walk-off. Amazing. This was a great game. Back and forth, really exciting. And to your point, Alan, it's why you hate playing at Missouri. Look, it's a, it's a weird place to win at. Hard place to win at. They play really well there. Kansas State's a consistently solid football team these days. This is a, this is a signature win for Eli Drinkowitz. You could tell that he felt that way. Kind of funny to go outside the SEC and feel like for your program that's a signature win. Uh, but I think they feel that way, especially with how the SEC is this year. And Missouri off to a nice start, a team that a lot of people thought was dangerous, coin flippy, but dangerous. And this one, you know, I think will will be significant for them no matter where their final win total is. That's a that's a memorable win for a lot of the Missouri fans. All right, UNC handles business 31-13 over Minnesota. Yeah, shame on me for thinking Minnesota could get inside of that. I'm an idiot. Uh, also, shame on us for not picking Missouri. So, you're you're nice week for you though. You went seven and three. Yeah, I, I, did I went six three. and four this week. That's so. not bad either. No, both positive, but yeah, good work. All right, Washington quietly an extremely prolific team and is looking like I don't know maybe a playoff lurker here. They haven't played the toughest schedule yet, but just been obliterating everybody. They beat Michigan State 41-7. to Yeah, quality, excellent offense, top three offense in the country, and Michigan State obviously in a really bad place. That felt like a, a lock at minus 16. You never know in college football, but that was a lock. BYU, I never can know what to do with them. I guess they're my Texas. At Arkansas, they pull off the victory late 38-31. Yeah, I made this pick with BYU because Arkansas just looks sus. I mean, I went with the SEC is sus narrative, and it paid out right there. That it did. All right, Pitt and West Virginia backyard brawl. West Virginia does it 17-6. to I don't think people saw that scoreline coming. No. Um, But, yeah, West Virginia, you know, they were once sort of a solid name in football and now just relegated to us picking them in random games. All right. Maybe the most entertaining game of the day. Late at night, I did not watch the second half of this. Colorado, they do not cover because they were favored by a healthy 22 and a half, but they do win 43 to 35 in overtime. 
Yeah, two of my friends and I made it until the very end. It was a wild scene. Colorado State was the better team. Absolutely, they should have won this football game. But you got to give credit to Colorado for just continuing to fight. Late touchdown. 98-yard Late two-point conversion. Overtime battle. I mean, yeah, the 98-yard drive when Colorado State had been stopping them. Just really, you know, really exciting stuff. Again, Dion is li- is lighting the sporting world on fire. He's got to be the most popular sporting figure in all of sports right now. And Colorado has to be the most talked about team. So I think they got everything they wanted in their hire of Dion. All right. Penn state takes care of business at Illinois 30 to 13. They look very nice. Illinois looks very pedestrian again. Yeah. Once again, I don't know why I would ever pick Illinois, but I just don't believe the Penn state is really all that good because they just don't ever look impressive when you watch them. Their schedule is really easy and they're winning. All right. FSU, man, they win very close at BC 31-29. BC was in this game. They're about to get the ball back. And they have their 18th penalty of the day with a face mask that allows FSU to put it away. But FSU looked extremely mortal in this game. I would say so. To get 18 penalties and have a chance to win is unheard of. It's unbelievable. And uh, Florida State, look, we're going to talk about LSU next, but obviously like, there's a reason why I was very confident LSU would smack Florida State, and there's a reason why I don't think Florida State is that good. Like, I still don't think they're that good. I think they're extremely overhyped. I think that they, we talked about this last year. They had a ton of coin flip results versus ACC teams. They got hot at the end of the year. It's a bad look for them, but you know what? All football teams generally that have good seasons have to survive a game like this. So if you're a Florida State fan, you're hoping that's what it is. I, however, think it's more of foreshadowing for things to come. I think this team has serious flaws. Uh, BC is not nearly quality enough to play with them, and they they had a lot of chances to to have that game at the end. All right, LSU plays really nicely at Mississippi State 41-14. This is what they probably expected to look like. This is maybe the best win of the day in terms of what do you want to show – in terms of progress for your team. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this was the LSU team people expected. Jaden Daniels threw for like a 90% almost completion rate. I mean, it was outrageous. Uh, their their absolute sensational receiver, which of course they always have, right? At LSU every single year, had 239 yards receiving. Uh, they were a juggernaut out there at Mississippi State. And so I think for Brian Kelly, you just got to figure out what to do in game one. But maybe this follows last year where they you know struggled in game one and then went on a run. They might be the team to beat again in the West. It looks that way right now if you're handicapping it. Everybody is struggling. All right, Georgia also struggled a ton down at halftime, I believe, to South Carolina. Yeah, 14-3 to three at halftime. Spencer Rattler was 16-18 of 18 at half. They put it on them in the second half, 24-14. I don't know. Maybe they'll just continue to do this every week, but they don't look sharp. Alabama does not look sharp. They... We'll get to them in the SEC roundup, but all the top teams struggled. I, you know, this was a terrible slate of games. This coming up week is awesome on paper, but this is college football. It always delivers a little. You don't expect these games of Florida State, BC, you know, Alabama, USF. Oh, there were so many really exciting games. Yeah. There were a ton of very, there were a lot of 20 plus point favorites that won games right at the end. It could have been like a bloodbath week. But it wasn't. And for UGA, I'm not as concerned with them. I think, you know, Carson Beck uh, had a phenomenal second half. He shredded South Carolina. They went on an absolute filthy run. I think they're finding themselves. But Carson Beck, great numbers. Go look up his stats. Really nice game. If Georgia has a quarterback, which I think they do in Carson Beck, I think he's figuring things out. I mean, their defense is still going to be really solid. 
Spencer Rattler gave them all that he could possibly give them. He played really, really well in this game. But, you know, Alabama, much bigger question marks. I think Georgia is going to just keep getting it right. Uh, but either way, again, SEC is sus. It's hard to predict what's going to happen. It's going to be a wild year. All right, Travis Hunter, Colorado star, lacerated liver out for a couple of weeks. Man, that that's a tough one for them heading into the meat of their schedule there. That's just trash. That hit was so late. And late hits happen, but really egregiously late hits. Stupid by the safety of Colorado State. And, you know, that's unfortunate. That's You never want to lose a player that way. Not that kind of hit. That's 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 really unfortunate. For and them. we mentioned this is another example of these close games. Texas over Wyoming, 31-10, to but it was tied 10-10 going in the fourth quarter. Right, and Texas, again, that's the thing with Steve Sarkeesian. It's like, can you trust Steve Sarkeesian? Can you trust Sark? I don't know. Texas gets it done ultimately, but, man, that's a bad look. I mean, Wyoming's a competent football yeah, team. Yeah, they're a good team. They are, but 10-10 in the fourth at home. I mean, that's, oh, you can't be feeling great after your win against Alabama, who then also looked super sus versus USF. Because Alabama went 17-3, but they're down 3 nothing for a while. A long time. They play three then different it's 10 quarterbacks. 10-3 for a while. Then they don't know who's playing quarterback. And they still don't know who's playing quarterback. They've announced that Jalen Miller is going to be their starter. Which is outrageous. I mean, he's terrible. Yeah, but did you watch the other two guys? They're also terrible. But, I mean, I, I don't I don't know. I feel like he's gotten the most chance. I'd go to someone like maybe Ty Simpson who's gotten the least amount of chance. I mean, I don't even know at this point in time. They're, I don't know how you can have so many talented guys on a roster and none of them seemingly could play quarterback. A&M over Louisiana Monroe, 47-3. to They are now averaging 38 points a game. So another example, this is why you're hiring OC. They haven't won quite yet, but offense this year is not their problem. And that happened in one season, which again, I want to say this really quickly. That's the benefit of where we are as Florida. We talked about kind of how it was like a good thing. Florida's getting close. If all you need is an OC, you can find OCs. It's a lot better than needing 10 different things. It's a lot better than needing good recruiting. Because you yes. can't just wish yourself good recruiting. You can't hire good recruiting. Anyway, Auburn beat Samford 45-13. Sure. It was a low-scoring game for a while, as Auburn games are. Vandy loses to UNLV. Oh, that's one hurts for Vandy. Oh, man, UNLV is not. Clark Lee, yeah. that's not the championship caliber of Vanderbilt Yeesh. you want to see. Again, Yeesh. SEC, bad look for SEC. Ole Miss beats Georgia Tech 48-23. They scuffled around for a while and then turned it on late. The Kentucky beats Akron 35-3. They also scuffled around for a while. Yeah, not exactly pretty. All right, Daytona Steve, tough week for Daytona Ooh, Steve. Daytona. He was building momentum. He bet Penn State over Illinois. That was smart. What the heck was Daytona thinking when he bet Tennessee 6.5 of Florida? Oh, boy, fail. Colorado, Colorado State. He went against us you know, on that one. That was, he, paid for, he paid the price. He lost his parlay thanks to Florida State and Boston College. Fun status now. At 311, so his road to $1,000 took a ding. Starting with 300, getting to 1,000, the road to 1K stands about where it started. We'll see what he's got for us this week. All right, several coaching corners here for you. We're going to start with UTSA versus Army. Army's up 37-29, eight-point lead, three minutes, 30 seconds left. UTSA has the ball fourth and 14 on their own 31-yard line, and they have three timeouts. 330, three timeouts, own 31, fourth and 14. UTSA punts. Army runs the clock out. Question is, would you rather punt for this or go for it on fourth down? I mean, fourth and 14 is is brutal. But UTSA, they're at their own 31-yard line? Yeah, not ideal. No. Yeah, in a vacuum, I, I think the answer is you punt here, right? Yeah. Unless you feel like maybe even passing all over them. I don't have the stats from this game. But if you have reason to believe that picking up that fourth down is, you can put a number on this, 35, 40%, go for it. 
because your odds of winning on punting are less than that. They're probably 25%, 20%, right? So you could just kind of do that math in your head. What are your odds of getting this? But Yeah, I mean, if Army's going to pick up those first downs, there's really nothing you could do. Nothing you can do anyway. But I think, again, punting gives you better field position, which increases your odds of scoring if you get the stop. You've got to assume what's the optimal. Punt, stop, I get the ball back probably in a better spot than I do if I don't. And also, you encourage Army to just kick a field goal there to knock you out. They could potentially try a long one or they punch you deep. So I prefer punting there generally. There could be some exploitative scenarios where I do something different. All right, let me take this next one here. Please do it. I didn't watch the end of the game here. You did. All right, CSU, Colorado State is up 28-20, two minutes left. They pin Colorado on the two-yard line. As the question asker here says, they then seem to go away from their defensive strategy that throttled Colorado the whole game and play prevent. They drive down the field, tie it up. Is that what happened there? I hated it. They did. They absolutely did. And, you know, one thing again about Coach Ham is that's not what he did. And I loved it. We stayed in the same posture all the way throughout that football game. We never just traded any scenario. The only time to go into prevent defense is when you know for sure the game is basically over and you just got to milk, you know, 40, 50 seconds off the clock and don't let them score instantly. That was incredibly dumb by them. All you're thinking of if you're Colorado State there is stop them to win the game. Be just as aggressive as you've always been and just stop them. Just go do what you've done. If they score, tip your hat to them and then stop them on the two-point conversion. But you're up eight. You actually have very little risk here. You should have nothing to fear. You should be playing aggressively because they are the ones that have everything to lose at that point in time. They're at home. They're the big-name team. You're a huge underdog. That was really sad that they sort yeah, of allowed Yeah, you don't want to go like cover zero and like leave yourself No, exposed. play your strategy. Play, yeah. play what's gotten you to that point. You're all the way till the end. Why are you changing what's gotten you to that point, right? And yeah. unfortunately for them, yeah, they, they wanted to just hope that Colorado would be their own worst enemy. And instead, they were their own worst enemy. All right, in the first overtime, this is a big one. I got asked this question a lot. On first overtime, Colorado scores first, kicks the extra point, goes up seven. Colorado State then also scores. They kick the extra point. Would you prefer they went for two right then instead? Yes, always, yes. If you have a chance to win the game with a two-point conversion in this crazy overtime, no, we've seen this go poorly for some teams who are trying it either late game or this. I don't care. You have to go for two there every time. This is the significant expected value advantage of going second in overtime. When you're going first, you cannot go for two. It is like a suicide pill because the opposing, if you don't get it, the opposing team gets the extra point and it's over for you. But you have the information. You have the intel. You now control your own destiny. I will win or I will lose. You control it. It's one play. If you Tell me you have one play you like. Also, with the new college football overtime, you know you're headed for two-point conversions really quickly anyway. Really quickly. It's not like you can, you can go 10 more overtimes and just keep kicking extra points. So because you know that's coming, take your chance to control your own destiny. It's in your hands. Football's yes. an offensive game. Absolutely go for two there. Yes, they, missed, I would, they missed an opportunity. Yes, I'm very clear on this. I think we're both aligned. All right, BC at Florida State. BC was down 22-31, so they're down by 9 with 5.30 left to go in the game. It's a 4th and 1 from the Florida State 7, and they go for it. They could have kicked a field goal to follow the rule of scores and make it a one-score game, but they risked it and went for it. Would you prefer they kicked a field goal there, or do you like that they went for it? 4th and 1 from the 7, I I do like going for it there because I think you it's harder to, to get, get the touchdown. You're so close. Any much further back from that, I, w- I would probably kick it. And it's fourth and one. It's not fourth and three. It's not fourth and five um, from the seven. So I, I would go th- for there. I like my odds there. Yeah, this is very play dependent for me. If I if I feel like I'm running the ball well or I have a play I feel pretty confident I will get, 
I'll go for it. If I've been unable to convert fourth and short, third and short all day, third and short, can I speak? Third and short all day long, I'm probably going to like the field goal and then push the game pressure to them and see if they'll make a mistake, get the ball back, go for the touchdown, right? Uh, but I think in this case, BC felt comfortable converting that fourth and one. They had been somewhat successful running in short yarded situations. They obviously did get it, which worked out. But that to me is nuanced depending on the game flow. I think you can make a case for either one. To your point, though, you definitely don't want to knock yourself out of having a chance to win the game and lose all momentum right there because you're not going to outright win if you get that first down. Uh, but I think that's finesse-oriented move there. All right, Falcons go for it in the NFL here. On fourth and one from the Green Bay 23, down two with 2.07 left. Then they have a fourth and one with 57 seconds left. And they choose to take the field goal. Of course, at this point in time, Green Bay has burned all of their timeouts. They wind up winning 25-24. Do you like this move? This is so interesting because of the time left on the clock and you're down two. And you're going to give them the ball back. Man, um, with their rushing offense, maybe I do like it with that amount of time left on the clock. I, it feels like kind of weird on the face of it, but I don't know. It's, it's aggressive. I kind of like it. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like there's a slight EV bump here uh, by going for it. And that is largely because, of course, this is always important to remember. You also they also have three timeouts in the two minute warning. So if they go for it and then <clears throat> you stop Green Bay, you get the ball back, you get yet another shot, take a field goal. So there's one of those weird moments where like a lot of, I think we just look at it and think if they don't get it, the game's over. That's not true. They'd probably get two shots. So I like to look at this as like a two for one for them in theory. And that's kind of why I think the analytics like it. it's like a two for one in basketball. You go for it, you get stopped, you stop them, you get the ball back, chance to win, right? But all that being said, this is game flow dependent. You just mentioned it. They're a prolif- prolific running offense uh, at least so far two games through in the nfl season for a mediocre team they have a lot of weapons there they can run the ball very well and if you feel comfortable picking that up it does significantly increase your chance of winning because you take green Bay's timeouts away also though the fourth and one with 57 seconds left is really interesting because now you've gotten yourself to the point where you just picked one up that only slightly increased your ev if you pick that one up, you go to basically a 99% win rate because you kick a field goal to win with no time left. So what I find really interesting is what I'm going to call the mismatch of this strategy in a certain way, which is that if you went for the first one, you probably had to lay it all line and go on the second one because there's a much bigger EV pickup for that one. But I'll tell you why coaches don't do it because there's no chance they can defend outright losing an NFL game on a fourth and one when they could have taken the lead and played defense. But the math would tell you they could. So that's one of those, what I'm going to call again, a mismatch like EV. Push. I know. I kind of like it. Maybe I'm fine with the mismatch there. Yeah. Well, I think it's because you, you take the lead and then you, you know, you make your opponent answer you. But if you're really going for like pure probability, you would take going for it on fourth and one there because your odds of winning, I think are the highest. Uh, anyway, someone can send me the math if that's wrong, but that's what my intuition says. All right. Let's read off some patrons, Alan. All right. David, Matt Bordis, AJ Singh, Jack Linati, Wilbert Van Cole, Jimmy Koch, Scott Greenberg, Daniel Rychek. Cameron Todd, Bob Beatty, the legend himself, JT Raymond, Leo Bruner, Matt, Matthew Cox, Zach F., Amar Vady, Shannon Bradley, Barry Averett, Kevin Trepanier, Wade Bayless. What's up, Wade? And then Wade Patterson, two awesome dudes right there back-to-back. Michael Viramontes, Kyle Chapin, Stephen Tosquez, Lakeside Gator, Josh Heflin. Ryan Delk, 
What up, Brian? Thomas Burgess, Sean Steers, Robert Lan, Guillermo Diaz. I always love reading his name G-Diaz. out here. Diaz. You always uh, get that. It's great. Adam Walters, Andrew Rutledge, Cameron White, Jamie Wagner, Brandon A. Blake, Mark Peden, Stephen Ward, Daniel Welsh, Bill Hood, Anne McQuinn, Edwin Hernandez Gunn, Connor Siegmaster, or Meister rather, uh, Rack2411. Nice. Richie Legler, Mark uh, Chemilarski, Matt Bryant, John C. Hmm. Arabi? Go for it. Could be Arabi or one of those. Andrew Mosley and Brandon Hensley. Thank you so much for supporting us. I think we're in the year 2008 now. I mean, 2018, rather. Sorry, not 2008. That'd be wild. <laughs> uh, 2018 from support. So thank you guys very much. Appreciate that. No live reads this week. We'll be back next week with a new and exciting live read. So stay tuned for that. Oh, yeah. And it is time now, Alan, for Charlotte Prep. All right. Let's talk about Charlotte. Kind of an interesting team, despite their anonymity here. They're one and two. They're facing the number 25 ranked University of Florida Gators in the rankings again, who are favored by 28 points. Last week, Charlotte lost to Georgia State 41-25. I I encourage you to Google a picture of Biff Pogge, their head coach. That's a real name, by the way. That is his name. Yeah. And (laughs) I was going to describe it Bill Belichick style, but it's even better than that. He looks like a high school gym coach from the 70s. He's got the sleeves cut off. He's got just a cut down the middle of his, I guess, crew neck sweatshirt. That's how he looks like all the time. He's old school. I mean, he used to work for Michigan um, and a list with Harbaugh. Apparently, he was fighting with his own staff last week and was frustrated with everybody. Oh, I would highly encourage you to Google the the quotes from this past game. Okay. I mean, he's calling out his own staff. He openly disagrees with his quarterback who said, I feel like we just need to carry over what we did in practice and we find in the games. And he says, I disagree with that, but nobody's asking me. Basically saying that his entire staff is sucking. And he's going to take control of all facets of the football team. I mean, it is some wild stuff because, Alan, he's in year one. Year one. It's wild. Interesting hire by them. Uh, you want to do a little big homie culture corner? You want to start us off here? I will, yeah. And then last note on Biff, interesting hire because he hasn't coached college football as a head coach ever. Very interesting. Trying to get a little bit of that hardball yeah. magic. He's a Baltimore guy. He's done some high school stuff. Which shout out for Baltimore, obviously, and my O's, as always, taking care of the Rays. Uh, all right, Big Homie's Culture Corner. Here we go. Thank you, Big Homie. Uh, Charlotte Center of the University of North Carolina, CCUNC, was established in 1946 and was saved from being shut down in the state in 1949, where it eventually became known as Charlotte College. Bonnie Cohn was the rescuer, and she felt that the 49er spirit embodied the school's resiliency which inspired her to save it from dissolution. Uh, A note here on 49er Spirit, in case you're unfamiliar with what that is, which most of you probably are not, but surviving hardships crossing the country during the California gold rush. That's the 49ers. Yes, and uh, Big Homie has a little note here. Not sure how that came about. Seems like maybe she had a minor fantasy. Right. So how does Charlotte become that way, given that she's in North Carolina, not California? I don't know. But the students voted for the 49er mascot upon its reopening in 1949. Uh, According to the school website, Norm the Niner, Mm. Normie, nice, is the official mascot of the 49ers. Uh, Norm has only been known by this name since the early 1990s, following yet another student vote. Previous to that, it was essentially unnamed. Norm is most often seen with his trusty pickaxe, as you'll see in Gainesville this Saturday, which, of course, is a symbol of his pioneer origins and intention to settle for nothing less than 
the gold standard. It's like right from their like website. Yeah. Side note: I wish that uh, the U.S. was actually on the gold standard for their monetary policy, but that's a totally different conversation <laughs> in general. Uh, prior to being known as the 49ers, Alan, did you know that you didn't that their teams were known as the Owls because I the university was a night school? That's, that's kind of cool. nice. I like it. I actually kind of like that. They should, they should have kept that in all reality. Uh, Norm, Norm the Niner, is available to attend birthdays, graduation parties, weddings, parades, festivals, anything else you could want. If you want Norm the Niner to come, then you should do this. And in fact, big homie, I expect to see Norm the Niner with you and your family soon on a photo that you send me. Thank you very much. All right, Alan, uh, enlighten us a little bit more about Biff. Okay, this is great. His real name is Francis Xavier Biff Poji. What a name. Right. Apparently, according to legend, when his mother, when he was born, his mother was going to let his 11 year old year old brother name him. And the brother chose Spike. <laughs> his mother said, no, we'll call him Biff. I, I, if that's better, I guess. I don't know. It's amazing. So, again, I've talked about his sweatshirts. He, he's 64 hedge fund manager. I would never. If you look at this guy, hedge fund manager is not what would have come to mind. Yeah. Dozen state championships coaching high school football. He had a one-year analyst. Important. For, Don't leave Maryland out. In Maryland. In Maryland. Thank you. Sorry. Thank you. So probably that into a one-year analyst gig for Harbaugh in 2016. Went back to high school, then back to Michigan. So I, you know what? If you're Charlotte, I kind of like this. Take the non-traditional route. It is very non-traditional. See if he can do it. Um, the fan reputation. Because he says, this is a tough one because there's not much dirt on these guys. They do have a cool picks-up hand gesture to show their team pride. And uh, it looks like the shaka. If you know what the shaka is like, the Hawaiian kind of hang loose symbol, it looks just like that, actually. There you go. So, yeah, great work, as always, big homie. Yes, I love it. It connects me more with the team that we're playing, especially when they're random like this. It's super fun. All right, obviously, Florida is way more talented. We're not going to even really get into returning production. Nope. First year OC, first year DC. These that, guys have been at some, yeah. some big schools. And uh, mention the D.C. because there's going to be some some good stuff here. All right. Ryan Osborne, his first season, former G under, GA graduate assistant under Grantham at Florida. There you go. During the 2018-19 yeah. So we'll season. see what uh, – spoiler alert, this defense has been getting lit up in the yeah. past game. My hope half. is that he picked up a lot of good stuff. <laughs> he just gleaned as much as he could from that era. All right. Uh, some names to note from Charlotte, QB Trexler Ivy. Ivy. They have two QBs. They're splitting yes. time now because they're in a QB. I don't know who's the Rotation. QB mode. And yeah. the other one you'll recognize, possibly Jalen Jones, former UF QB who was on the roster for about 10 minutes, got booted. He's been playing. Trixer Ivy's been playing. Uh, they have a running back and a wide receiver who have names. They only um, have one. Jack Hestra, the wide receiver, is by far the most heavily targeted. And uh, as you mentioned, Jalen Jones is really the leading runner on the team as a quarterback. So there's Yes, that that's good to note. Um, they were 3 of 14 on third down last week, but 3 of 6 on fourth down. Yeah, Georgia, Georgia State jumped on them early, and then they made a furious comeback, actually made the game competitive before they fell to that. Charlotte also was leading Maryland for quite some time in their opener on the road, and the Maryland scored 38 points in the second half on them. So, you know, Jones is the runner, Ivy's the passer. Poji likes to call this a Big Ten team. Yeah, it's pretty great. Yeah. Right? Dominated line of scrimmage, gap running, play action passing. He is old school. I mean, that's yeah. what it is. It's like a throwback to a yesteryear, which, of course, is why he spent time with Harbaugh as an analyst to learn from the most Big Ten team of all Big Ten teams. All right. So defensively, nothing really to note here. They're on porous personnel. is what they're we know overall. They've been giving up a lot of points. Now, they're known for being porous. Their defense in the past couple of years has been amongst the worst in all of college football. 
They were hoping this new hire and hires would help. It's only game three, but they're not getting the results they want right now. Uh, so, you know, for that, that's what it's worth. All right. So just to sum this up, um, they are at a much higher level than a team like Mingli State is, who's an FCS team. So this will be... Yeah, they, they they could win in theory. It is possible. Yes, this is a yeah. much sterner test when you're talking about relativity in terms of these cupcake matchups, as we like to call them. So Mingli State offered nothing. You could have rolled out anybody and beat them probably. Um, Charlotte, you Florida needs to be awake and win this game. They should have no problem, but if they implode they will lose so i don't think billy will let that happen but you know if you want a little intrigue to the game it's uh, it's there um so yes not a lot to note from charlotte they will provide some resistance more than many state at least. well fun fact and i didn't deep dive this team obviously i spent all my time on breaking down tennessee and talking about that but there's, this is really bizarre. You almost never see this. Charlotte is much better versus man than zone. They have a far higher completion rate and passer rating. Now, I can tell you why that is right now if you're already surmising that. It's because Jalen Jones is a running quarterback, which means he's running around back there in the pocket versus man, and he throws the ball to someone when the play is already busted up. So a very sandlot with their passing quarterback ivy the guy who played last time he's more traditional so he's lower comp rate versus man but jalen jones has done really well actually versus man defense like but that's largely why is he runs around buys time either runs it or finds a guy open so if jalen jones is the quarterback you can expect florida to play zone and keep eyes on him because he's not a good passer and if ivy's the quarterback you can expect them to mix other stuff in but either way i wanted to note that because that is highly unusual you rarely see a guy who is throwing way better versus man coverage completion percentage wise then zone. There and this go. is a night game, so that's a blessing for Florida faithful. Don't have to cook through a nooner there. All right. Suspensions, injuries, depth chart category. I, you know, Billy kind of talked about Micah Mascua. Maybe there's some stuff going on. If anyone's suspended, they didn't say that. Uh, Trey Wilson is banged up. Uh, the x-rays were negative, so I don't think it's a long-term thing, but I, I used banged up in quotation. That's as precise as we're going to get. So you won't see him in this game. I, I don't know when we'll get him back, uh, but that's a bummer, but hopefully not necessary to have him versus Charlotte. Yeah, hopefully not. All right, let's um, with the keys to the game, we'll do the same thing we did with with McNeese State, although this, you know, 28-point line, it, it could be obviously a some game for a longer period of time. What is your What is your your takeaway that you want to have from this game? What are you hoping to accomplish if you're, if you're the coach here? Well, on offense, I think, you know, last time you wanted to see against Mini State, you wanted to see them be able to run the ball effectively because they had, they basically didn't even really even attempt it versus um, Utah. Very few carries for the running backs. Um, so from the passing game, I, I think I want to see, I don't I don't have good metrics for this, but past the eye test that it looks like um, it's efficient and effective against a team that probably can't slow you down very much. I don't want to see really any pressure on the QB. So if I'm putting any kind of metrics on this, like very low QB pressures and hurries when he drops back that they can handle whatever Charlotte's giving them. Defensively, I mean, this should be under 10 points. And I want to see them continue to be aggressive with whatever Charlotte's doing. I have no doubt they will be. 
Yeah, I like that on defense. Ten points or under, I, I would say that. You know, no, no, no. Yeah, defense. I, I like the the under ten points. I think the defense is going to gun for yet another shutout in this particular game. Uh, but I like under ten points, and that's fine. It's another game for you to try to play some younger guys again, and that's where I think you get those back end points that may mm-hmm. come through. I'm, I'm going to copy that same under ten points. I think for the offense, I'm going to go points wise again because I think production is what you're looking for in these games. I think Florida needs to score over, you know, for me to be like pleased, we're moving in the right direction with this offense. Really, Florida needs to score over, you know, 45 points in this game. Okay. I'll take 40 as a bottom, but I'd I like to see them take some steps forward. Let's get a game on the board where we score a lot of points uh, and, and let's make that happen. So, over 45, under 10. And then, of course, stylistically, you want to see the team continue to improve, which are the things you mentioned. Uh, play cleaner, play better, less penalties, fewer mistakes. And uh, obviously, hopefully, easier plays on offense. It'd be nice to generate some downfield passing if the defense allows that to happen, which they have allowed that to happen with every team they've played. So if Florida is yet again unable to complete passes downfield, that's that would be another warning sign, given the other teams have shredded them through the air. All right, prediction time. Me first. Yeah. Uh, okay, well... I still don't know what to make of Florida's passing offense, and I'm not going to really. I think all year long it's going to be the wild card every single time. So I'm going to start with their point total. Uh, I I don't know that they scored a touchdown in this game, so I'm going to give them six points. And we're probably going to walk our way into 42 points. <laughs> There's a 42-6 right. to six score. I'll go 38-10. Okay. And so I'm, I'm fine with 10. So under 10 points or 10 or under, or however you want to say that. But... Um, yeah, you know, six or nine would be better. Field goals would be better. And yeah, I, I think that the, this team could score more points. We'll see what happens when you see the backups in there on offense. Are they able to generate the kind of, um, yardage necessary to get in position to score? And I I don't know that they will without the stars. And so, yeah, it feels like 38. I mean, I guess that's a push. (laughs) I predicted a push there. But I don't. I don't expect the game to be in danger. If the game feels in danger at all, that that'll be a red mark for sure. Yeah, for sure. All right, that would put Florida at three and one with a win through the first quarter of the season. How would you feel? How would you feel about that? I'd love it. Yeah, be nice, right? All right, Oklahoma onto the slate now. Number sixteen, Oklahoma, favored by fourteen at Cincinnati. Oklahoma's, Emory Jones is Cincinnati. Yeah, Oklahoma's been quietly putting up some points here. I'm going to take them for sure. Yeah, me too as well. I think Brett Venables versus Emory Jones is a battle he should be able to win. Auburn at Texas A&M. Texas A&M favored by eight. Man, this is a wild matchup. This is wild. I love it. Um, I, I don't really trust either of these two teams, but I'll take Auburn if I'm getting eight points. I'm going to take A&M because if they're scoring in the mid-30s, we already know Auburn can't score. So I think eight points should be enough. Arkansas at number 12, LSU. LSU favored by 18. Yeah, I'll take that. Arkansas looks like they're going to give up enough. And then I think you know LSU tacks on one late here to, to cover. Yeah, 18 is a big number with an SEC game. Arkansas tends to be competitive. But again, I think Brian Kelly is going to get this, this LSU team rolling. They have too much talent for Arkansas. I'll go through there too. Iowa. At Penn State, Penn State favored by 14 and a half. Number 24, Iowa, by the way. Yeah. I don't think Iowa's going to be able to score enough points to make this, like, challenging for Penn State. So I'll I'll take Penn State here. Okay. This, to me, feels like a 20 to 10 kind of game. So I'll take Iowa. 
Uh, UCLA, number 22 UCLA, number 11 Utah. Utah favored by five. Do we see Cam rising in this game? It's a great question. I wish I knew in terms of making this pick whether he's going to play or not. UCLA, I don't know, man. That's weird. I don't don't know what to make of them at, at all. I have more trust in Utah. I'll go there. Utah's won a bazillion games here at home, as we know. Uh, but this feels like this is where their time runs out. I'm going to take UCLA. Okay. Number 14, Oregon State. Quietly a very solid football team favored by two and a half over another quietly solid football team, Washington State. The two leftovers from the Pac-12. Yeah, I like the Beavs here. I, I have much more faith in them. I like what they're doing offensively and defensively. Yeah, more complete team, I think. Washington State's offense has been lighting the scoreboard up. We'll see what happens here, but that should be a, a, a really good one to watch. Number 15, Ole Miss, and number 13, Alabama, and Lane Kiffin every year is closing down this line, Allen. It's only seven for this one. I don't think I would take Alabama in seven versus a lot of different teams right in here, but definitely not against Ole Miss. This has got to be the year. If you are Lane Kiffin, this is your moment. This is it. This is the moment, right? He's right there in front of you. It's seven points. You might never get a better opportunity. Got to take him down. Take Lane Kiffin. Number 19, Colorado at number 10, Oregon. Here's the reality of playing an actual team. Wow. Oregon favored by 21. That feels huge. I mean, Colorado was favored by 22 against Colorado State. And this shows you what we've been talking about. Is their schedule been favorable? Obviously, they were, if they were double-digit underdogs, TCU, and they won that one, what happens here? I, I don't like this line either way. Um I guess I'll take Oregon here, though. But, I mean, this is a kooky line. This is way too high. I think that Colorado losing Travis Hunter, it's weird to lose a, a player that's not a quarterback and mm-hmm. have that really change the game. But that is that is your true – that is like the best player on the field for either team. And he plays both ways. And there's no chance Colorado even remotely replaces that. That changes so much of what they want to do. I think this could be tough sledding for them. Their offensive line, Allen, is undersized. They're not up for this kind of matchup. They're on the road. Uh, this, could, this could get nasty. Uh, we'll see. But I'm going to take Oregon. All right. Florida State, number four, on the road at Clemson, favored by just one and a half. That line feels low. This feels a little too tricky. I'm not sure about this. I don't trust Clemson yet enough to pick them at Florida State one and a half. So I'll go Florida State. I hate Florida State. I'm going to go Clemson. Number six, Ohio State on the road at number nine, Notre Dame. Ohio State favored by three and a half. First of all, I I feel badly that you just made me sound like I liked Florida State. So I'll take umbrage with that. But anyway, the pick here, Ohio State three and a half, that that feels like I got to take them. The Notre Dame in big games here just hasn't really shown up in the past. So I'll take Ohio State. This Notre Dame team feels different to me. They've got a real quarterback. I don't trust Ryan Day. I feel Ooh. like, if possible, he's trending down ever so slowly and steadily. We'll find out this weekend, but give me Notre Dame. All right, Daytona Steve. His week four bets are as follows. South Carolina over Mississippi State. Six and a half point line there. 50 bucks on that one. He's got USC minus 34 at Arizona State. 50 bucks on that one. And then a nice little parlay. UCLA plus four. Texas Tech minus five and a half at West Virginia. Alabama under 31 total points versus Ole Miss. Wow. Interesting. Duke minus 21 at UConn. Iowa 14 and a half at Penn State. I like that one, Daytona Steve. Wyoming minus two and a half at App State. 
10 bucks there. So $10 on all those parlays. It's like a 17 parlay. I think you win 450 bucks. There you go. So there's it. That's a, that's a Daytona C special right there. We'll see how he does. We'll follow up next week with that. Any other items from you, Alan? Man, it's been great living in the, just the goodness of that win. Hope we rack up a few more of those till we run into the meat grinder. That is the end of the schedule and Florida has some momentum there, but good time to be a Gator. Enjoy it. Everybody. Yeah. What a, what a great time. Had a blast here on the pod this week. Uh, other news and notes, Florida basketball seems to be just significantly trending up in the recruiting world. They had a five-star on campus uh, for the weekend. So, you know, you know, we like to give you a little basketball notes yeah. here and there, but Todd Golden, the boys, hopefully on the rise, hopefully Florida's on the rise in general. Should be a mellow and hopefully enjoyable, stress-free Saturday night in the swamp. A chance to enjoy the Tennessee win one more week before we then really begin the real slate for the rest of the year. And then we'll see what this football team is made of. But either way, on behalf of little Peyton, who thanks you all for his support uh, and yet another W over Tennessee. And for Alan and I, thanks for listening. We super appreciate spending time with you each and every week. And we look forward to being back with you next week when we break down all the action from Charlotte and get you prepped for the week after. Until then, enjoy the week.